You're listening to Review and Preview on Facebook Live. Good evening. Welcome to Review and Preview, folks. I'm your host, Tom Scavetta. Join alongside James Montefusco and Kyle Russo here in studio. Quick rundown of what we're going to go through tonight. We are going to highlight the MLB trade deadline. Uh, first day of September. Welcome. Uh, a new month. It's crazy. This year, 2020, keeps flying by. Uh, 7 to 9 p.m. tonight, our new time on Facebook Live. Follow us at Review and Preview Sports. Follow us on Instagram at Review and Preview. Subscribe to our audio podcast at anchor.fm slash Review and Preview. Share this podcast. Quick announcement, too. Our Team of the Week segment is back tonight. We're going to have that at the top of the hour. Kyle and James, welcome. Hey, Tom. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Just uh, looking at this Mets game. Glad the Todd father is back. Number 21. (laughs) Mets acquired him at the trade deadline yesterday. But... Uh, Before we get there, let's talk about some of the other trades we're going to go over. Uh, The biggest one, in my opinion, the Indians trade pitcher Mike Clevenger to the Padres in a uh, six-player return, which was a nine-player deal. They got catcher Austin Hedges, outfielder Josh Nalo, pitcher Cal Quantrill, uh, lefty Joey Cantillo. They got shortstop Gabriel Arias and infielder Owen Miller. In addition, the Padres got... Um, Greg Allen and a player to be named later on in addition to Clevenger. Uh, thoughts on this? I thought the Padres did an excellent job at the deadline. Yeah, they really stood out as really the only team that was actively doing a lot of things to really improve upon and make them a contention uh, contending team. You look at where they sit right now in the National League, and yes, they're in the same division as the L.A. Dodgers, who are just absolutely taking over the MLB, but the San Diego Padres are – not quietly, but taking over the league as well with 22 wins, 15 losses, Fernando Tatis Jr., MVP candidate, Manny Machado, Eric Hosmer, uh, already have a guy in Chris Paddock as a pitcher, now acquiring Mike Clevenger, who uh, last year at some point in time was one of the best pitchers that baseball had uh, with the Cleveland Indians, and now they trade for him to really solidify that pitching core, and they're going to be a scary team come playoff time. I agree. I agree. A hundred percent. They also got Mitch Moreland uh, from the Red Sox and then Jason Castro from the Angels and then pitcher Trevor Rosenthal from the Royals. I found that very interesting. Uh, And not to mention Trevor Williams from the Mariners as well. Definitely some good acquisitions for them. Uh, James, what are their playoff chances now? I mean, they're doing pretty good for themselves so far. Uh, Playoff chances went went up. By a lot. I mean, it's a 60-game season, so with an extra few extra teams that can make the playoffs, it's just going to help their chances a bit. We're more than halfway through the season. We're at the halfway point of a 60-game season now. Um, I see them making a good run for the playoffs, personally. I mean, they're adding, they're pushing the right buttons. We'll see how far it gets them. It'll be very interesting to see how that all unfolds. Of course, other moves that were made, the Marlins, out of all teams, uh, lurking around 500 still, they acquired outfielder Starling Marte. 
they acquired him from the Diamondbacks for three relief pitchers in Caleb Smith, Humberto Mejia, and Julio Frias, who uh, will join Matt Joyce in the outfield. So I like this trade for the Marlins a lot. They got an outfielder, and they're still, I think, in the rebuilding phase, but they have a great manager in Don Battingly. I think they're pulling all the right plugs. They've surprised a lot of people. Yeah, they sit number two right now in the, I want to say two in the in the NL East, I want to say, right behind the Atlanta Braves uh, due to the craziness of the schedule. The Mets have been losing. The Phillies have been losing. Washington has not looked good. And Miami, I believe, sits at that number two spot right behind the Braves. And like James said, with an expansion of the amount of teams that can make the playoffs, adding a solid player in Starling uh, Marte, who's hitting, I believe, above 300 right now i want to say 310 somewhere around that number that's an excellent acquisition not only defensively on the um in the outfield but batting wise as well to add to your lineup i definitely agree i do think that uh he's a good addition i'm not sure if this is going to be a long-term acquisition because i believe his contract is coming up soon but what i also found funny was the red sox right so they've had a down year so far in the sh- uh, shortened season they've been selling a lot of people and they also sold a guy they just acquired an outfielder kevin P- uh, P- uh pillar and he was on the giants last year i remember him from that like insane 16 inning game against the mets uh he gets sent to the rockies and then out of nowhere the a's acquire mike minor uh the a's have been fantastic this year i think they might be an arm or two short and they made a great move getting him from the Rangers for two players to be named. I really like Mike Miner. I know he's an older pitcher, an older player, but he brings a lot, and he's an under-the-radar type of pitcher, uh, which is kind of funny. And then another guy who a lot of people thought were going to be dealt last year was uh, Robbie Ray, right? There was a lot of heat between him and the Yankees last year. So the fact that they got him, and cash from Arizona for left-hander uh, Travis Bergen. I think the Blue Jays, you know, they're still a team that's on the rise. They have a lot of good young core weapons in Vlad Guerrero, uh, Bo Bichette, those guys, just to name a couple. To add a guy like Robbie Ray to that rotation where he could be somewhat of a centerpiece for the team is great. I also think that um, now, now we'll get to Ross Stripling, right, former Dodger. Uh he got dealt to the Blue Jays as well, I think, right? They also acquired him. The Blue Jays acquired Robbie Ray and Ross Stripling in exchange for two players to be named. So now that's two pitchers for Toronto to work with. And this is a year where Toronto is not entirely out of the playoffs because of the eight-team uh, playoff in each uh, conference, the NL and the AL. And then the Mets, right? I think these were a lot of curious moves by this team. I think the biggest... Uh, issue obviously it's been the Cespedes contract and the injuries to the starting pitchers but other than that um yes you can make an argument that it's the bullpen but I'll be honest with you these acquisitions don't make sense I think the Mets have done a really bad job of trading away a lot of their young pitching prospects guys like Anthony Kay um Kevin Smith another guy that they uh disposed at the deadline and they get Todd Frazier back along with Robinson Chirinos from the Rangers, which is great. However, those guys are old, right? Frazier's 34, Chirinos is 36. What do you need them for, right? I think Frazier you might need for a locker room guy. Look, I still think Todd Frazier is a better third baseman to have than Jed Lowry. He hasn't played a game in two years for the Mets. Might as well have re-signed 
Todd Frazier and never even signed Jed Lowry in the first place. Because at least Frazier hit you 20-plus home runs in a season. Yeah. Yep. Well, who is, who's your starting third baseman right now? It's J.D. Davis, right? So why did they decide to acquire another third baseman? I get the catcher because it seems like Ramos has been having problems all year, and they've been talking about uh, Tomas Nito being the guy potentially. So acquiring uh, Torinos is definitely good. But why another third baseman? Just to add depth, I guess. I'd uh, Maybe alluding to the fact that maybe they need a locker room presence. I mean, you guys watched very closely when you guys acquired him a deadline a year or two ago. What did did you guys notice any changes within on-field play by the Mets or locker room assessment, dugout assessment with Todd Frazier being a part of that team? Did you notice any difference? Or how about this? Once he left, did you notice any difference? Well, with Frazier, he was filling a void when we signed him. Yeah, because we didn't have a third base. We didn't really have it. We had David Wright, and then we had I don't remember how many third basemen. Too many. Yeah, and then we got Todd Frazier, and yeah. then he was that lockdown third baseman guy that we needed ever since David, and then he was also a locker room guy. Yeah, but by bringing him back now, I look at it like, okay, what are you trying to win? We try. We could have gone over five hundred against the Yankees. We'll we'll get to that. Yeah, um, we didn't. We lost last night to the Orioles. We're winning right now, but yeah. as you know, it could. It, personally, for Frazier to come back, it's a waste of money to have Jed Lowry. Yeah, and to have Frazier, to be honest, I would have. If I was the Mets, I would have just picked nobody up. Maybe some bullpen help. Maybe some. Maybe some prospects. Other than that, I wouldn't even have bothered in this trade deal. I agree with you partially, but I don't think Kyle's question was answered entirely. I think what Todd Frazier brings that Jed Lowry doesn't, and the change that really people saw when Todd Frazier left was there's been a lot of platooning on the roster. Uh, I think there is a, a real good sense of togetherness last year, especially late in the season when the Mets did make that playoff push. If you remember, they were like half a game back at one point, yeah. for a wild card spot. They they just came back. And I think you can't do that without a veteran like him. Now, I understand this is a COVID uh, struck season, but the fact that you have him now definitely helps because I think it saves Brody Van Wagen's butt a little bit. And it saves Luis Rojas's butt, too, because, quite frankly, there is no guy that's really calling the shots, an older player. Maybe Jacob DeGrom, but he's a pitcher. He's not in there with uh, those veteran players. He can't sit there and tell me that Wilson Ram- – I mean, look, uh, all due respect to Wilson Ramos, but he's working more with the pitchers. The guy you really look to is Robinson Cano, who's been on and off the IL all season, right? You have a utility guy on the bench like Todd Frazier. It gives you more depth because James is right. The Mets don't have a really good backup third baseman at the moment especially with Jeff McNeil now in the outfield. I think adding him and Chirinos, it, you know, it adds some depth. You know, uh, Tomas Nito, look, I think he's a good backup catcher. I think he's a lot better with a glove defensively, calling signs and whatnot, and uh, reading the pitcher's radar better than Ramos. But um, the one move that I do think made a little bit of sense was requ- uh, acquiring Miguel Castro, a reliever from the Baltimore Orioles. I do think that was good for the Mets because, quite frankly, you need to just bring in as many relievers as you can and try to mix and match and see who works. I mean, yeah. out, of, out of the 10 guys, you know, you try every single year, two or three of them got to stick. And we've seen that this year with David Peterson. Um, and, you know, Seth Lugo's another guy a couple of years ago, for instance. So, you know, I do think 
having as many relievers as you can is important, especially with uh, coronavirus. But we'll get to the Mets uh, in just a few moments. But before that, uh, another move, the Reds acquired Archie Bradley, a closer from the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks really cleaned house. They started off okay, but they all of a sudden just fell off the map, uh, which is not good. So I guess they're kind of cleaning house. But who really won this trade deadline? Was it the Padres? Was it the Marlins? Was it a team like Oakland? I think it's I think it's hands down it's got to be the Padres just because they they made the move that you could arguably say was probably the most impactful move and is going to keep them steady and afloat in the position in which they're in you know acquiring Robbie uh, Robbie Ray by the Jays that's a trade and hope to surpass a team like the Yankees who they only sit two and a half uh, two games behind or just to get into that eighth um, to get into the playoffs itself being an eight team playoff now. But with the Padres, they already, you know, if it wasn't for the Dodgers being as good as they are, the Padres stand as a top three team right now in baseball. They stand as a top three team in baseball, I think, record-wise and power ranking-wise. They're right there. So adding this type of player, this type of impactful player to your pitching core on top of everything else that you acquired, because I believe they acquired they acquired like four or five players in this trade deadline, besides Mike Clevenger himself. But getting him alone shows you how serious they are to keeping where they're at consistently for the next 20, 30 games into the playoffs themselves. So they Fair definitely enough. won. They definitely won. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I think teams like the White Sox and the Yankees stood a little flat. I think the Yankees had a lot of injury issues, this and that. I think uh, the Braves really didn't do much. I know they did a lot last year, acquiring Melancone and a couple other guys. Yeah. Uh, Houston. Look, uh, not many guys want to play there right now, to be fair. And Tampa Bay, uh, they really didn't do much either. And I know they've been just fine um, competing with the Yankees right now. They've actually had the upper hand all season. Uh, Head-to-head, Tampa Bay's been dominating. Yeah, besides that was their first win last night. That was their first win against the Rays last night all season in like seven matchups. And just a heads up, folks, uh, as we're rolling through the show, quick reminder, at 7.40 p.m., we will be joined by Gabe Flayton, who will analyze the uh, trade by his Minnesota Vikings acquiring Yannick Ngakwe from the Jaguars, and he will also analyze the Leonard Fournette uh, release with us as well. So stay tuned for that. Let's get to the Mets. I don't know if their game today is final yet, but they were beating Baltimore pretty bad, 9-2, to last I saw. Um, yeah, it's the bottom they, of the ninth right now. Actually, the Orioles just scored two two runners score in the bottom of the ninth. So. All right, no shocker there. Uh, but yeah, so um, you know, I, I just I got to tell you now, Mats is on the IL. Batansis is on the IL with a lat injury. Trade rumors about Edwin Diaz. I personally, I don't know who would want him at this point. Um, just another terrible acquisition. The only good news probably right now is Steve Cohen's in negotiations with the team again. Uh, and he's probably emerging as the front runner to, uh, you know, buy as the bid. Uh, I think, no, he, he is. Yeah. So he's he basically is. going to. It's just the, the, the Will Ponds and him don't have the best relationship. And I know A-Rod and J-Lo backed out. Yeah, their um, group backed out. Um, yeah. But, I mean, have you guys seen Dom Smith rake in, though? Yeah, Dom Smith and surprisingly Robinson Cano has been some of your best baseball players, which is very surprising considered one of them was horrible last year. And Dom Smith, 
wouldn't wasn't even on the team, granted, for all these injuries in which the Mets have been having. Yeah. So those are some bright spots definitely in your lineup, though. Well, he was on the team. He, he just no, never he got wasn't, the he wasn't going to start. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't going to start if it wasn't for all these injuries. So let's move on with the Mets because, quite frankly, there's just been too much of exclusive talks with uh, Mr. Cohen. Yankees, your Yankees take three out of five from the Mets. And uh, after the Mets won a doubleheader on Friday, so they played five games. They're playing the sixth game tomorrow. Uh, Friday, the Mets won uh, game one, six to four, and then game two, four to three. Diaz got a second save of the season, so the Mets are looking good. Uh, I think the Mets had like three home runs in that game. It was Alonzo, James was saying, Dom Smith, and then uh, Jake Marisnik, who's back. Yes. Great to see him back on the team. And then game two, Araldis Chapman blows the save. He's been a little shaky for you guys in the nightcap. Uh, I think yeah. Ahmed Rosario had the game-winning home run, home run in the seventh um, inning. Now, I don't know if you guys remember or recall this. Um, the Mets were the home team at Yankee yeah. Stadium. So they had yeah. a walk-off home win at Yankee Stadium. Yep. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Russo? I'm going to be dead honest with you. All five of these games were played horribly by – each team these were just horrible baseball games to watch i mean chapman blowing the save game three Dellen patances with the uh the giveaway with the crazy pitch giving up a 7-2 lead with two strikeouts in the bottom of the seventh of a double header which means that would have been the final inning these games were horrible by both teams they were really bad baseball i mean i was i was surprised to see the wins of the yankees got surprised to see the wins of the mets got but tom continue i know i took over a little bit and jumped but I had to say it. Oh, just, you're good. I was just going to say, Kyle, that, uh, you know, surprisingly, you talked about J.A. Happ before we went live. Saturday, Happ just comes back and it's fantastic, right? Yeah. Yeah. They came back. I, I believe he pitched seven, seven innings. He pitch seven innings? Yeah. Seven and a third. No runs, three hits. So he was great. Uh, Giselman was okay. He was pretty good. And then Matt's uh, – out of relief, Matt's back in the bullpen, uh, pitched two-thirds of an inning, and then Batances lost the game on the wild pitch, which scored Clint Frazier. So, you know, Batances a little uh, – maybe a little ill will against his former team, unable to deliver uh, yeah. the fastball down the plate, and just Yankees win off of that. And then Sunday, he gets no better. Yankees take both games of the uh, doubleheader. The Mets were up 7-2. to two. In game one, and the Yankees find a way to win eight to seven, scoring six unanswered. Diaz with his fourth blown save of the season. Uh, need to put the fins up there. And Brooks Chris gave up five runs in an inning and a third. Great. Uh, Brooks Kirk's probably somebody that 2% of Met fans know about. Maybe a solid three. Krisky. No. I Krisky, know who yes. that was. Krisky. And then it's a shame because. Uh, Cano, Conforto, and Alonzo, they were all great in this game. They each had a pair of RBIs, and then Hicks and Voigt uh, just come back, and they, they were fantastic, quite frankly. Um, game two was not much better for the Mets. Yanks won 5-2. to two. Seth Lugo went three and two-thirds, had seven strikeouts. I thought he was solid starting. I like that he's starting now. Uh, he didn't play much, though. But then Gary Sanchez with a 453-foot grand slam in the eighth inning in the top of the eighth pretty much put the game to bed when the yanks were down it was it's just such it was such terrible played baseball it was 
it was awful. The, the, the blowing uh, of games late in these games, the Mets, to be quite honest with you, and this is me sitting here as a Yankees fan, the, the Mets should have won all five of these games. They should have won all five of these games. I mean, that 7-2 that game, not only was it in the top of the seventh, top of the seventh with two strikeouts, you had to strike out one batter. Can I just got one batter? I'm going to go on a quick mini 30-second rant. There's something Mets fans don't realize every year, and this is coming from a, you know, a, Met, a Mets fan who's been watching the Mets since I was like seven, eight years old. Yeah. Guys, the Mets suck. Just Mets fans have a terrible, terrible omen of getting their hopes up every single year. Oh, we have this player. We have that player. We have a two-time Cy Young. As long as the Will Ponds were there, the Mets will have zero long-term success. They may get lucky a year and make a deep playoff run, but just stop it. Stop it getting your hopes up with this team every year. They stink. Yeah. They're horrendous. They are difficult to watch. They always lose games that they should win. When good pitchers, they have great pitchers on their team, like the Grom and Syndergaard, they get no run support. The bats show up when their starter gets blown up for five or six runs in like four or five innings pitched. And you see it every single year. And you'll see it this year. The Mets lost five or six games in a row. They come back and they score like almost 10 runs today. Yeah, they won 9-4 today. They pour all their offense into mini spurts. It's just not good. And the Mets have a really, really bad, uh, you know, just – sense of direction and signing these guys who are way past their prime. Uh, you know, as good as Robinson Cano is, like the guy gets hurt every two to three weeks. Uh, Todd Frazier is back. Robinson Chirinos is there. Uh, look, I mean, I hate to say it. Half these guys are, um, you know, on the verge of retirement. It's definitely something that's going to have to be watched uh, within the next few weeks. But uh, enough on my rant of the Mets guys. Um by the way, Kyle, congrats to uh, Devi Garcia starting that game. He looked pretty decent in the six innings he pitched. It was a bright spot. It was a bright spot in this game. It was it was really exciting. He doesn't he I, I don't know if it was a little bit of nerves or maybe just you know his top speed. His fastball isn't the fastest, um, in which obviously that ball would be determined. I think his fastball is like a ninety two, so not the fastest. Maybe you know they were talking about him being a potential ace. I don't know that uh, unless he really improves upon his fastball. Um, but definitely solid to see out of his first start, six innings. Um, I think two hits he gave up yeah. along those lines. And uh, 100%. I, yeah, so listen, you can't, you can't for a team that's been in shambles to, to have something go right where nothing is highly expected. Uh, you know, going to this game, Debbie Garcia, obviously one of the best prospects, if not their best prospect. You just hope at this point in time that, you know, this kid doesn't get shell shock nerves and you see him go down to the alternative site, you know, after the game is over, but this is a real bright spot in this Yankees in this Yankees franchise, especially because their pitching core has also been in shambles. Now I'm just saying to any Met fans watching and just stop with the BS. And the more you lower your expectations, and I, I've noticed this growing up as a Mets fan, if you lower your expectations, the success feels a lot better. It feels a lot better where I'll actually be excited to get number eight seed if we actually get in. Because quite frankly, I don't think the Mets are going to get in. If they get an eight seed, I'm going to be very excited. Yeah. But a lot of Mets fans are expecting to win the division. They're expecting to get a top wild card spot. No, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. 
Yep. Just get that out of your mind. There's too many flaws on this team right now. None of the starting pitchers are healthy. There's something new that randomly occurs every single year. And another prime example of that is last night. Let's let's get it. Let's get into it. Because on Monday, I'm sitting here and I'm saying the Grom is on the mound. This is going to be great. This is his third start in a row against the Marlins. The Grom has not lost a start all year. Wrong. What happens? The Marlins win 5-3. to three. Now, of course, this was a makeup game from Thursday. The Mets were up 2-0 in this game. Typical, right? Typical yeah. Mets start. The Grom is pitching well. Everyone's really excited to watch him. And then the Marlins score four runs in the sixth inning against the Grom who loses first game of the season, which is a shame. I mean, look, the Grom can't go out there and have a flawless start every time. He has about two to three bad starts a year, maybe one or two okay ones, and the rest are all superb. That's exactly what you want out of your ace. No player is 100% perfect. No, The Grom had nine strikeouts in six innings and gave up four runs, and I guarantee you that may be his worst start of the season, and it wasn't even that bad. It wasn't No doubt. He had one bad inning, and – I think Garrett Cooper hit the home run, I want to say. Um, and then Brandon Kinsler, surprisingly, for the Marlins, getting his seventh save. Very impressive. And then the Mets dropped their fourth straight. Wow. Last night, playing the Orioles, another lowly team. Well, maybe not so much this year. Uh, Ariel Juardo makes his major league debut for the Mets. Who's that? Well, that proves my point. You never know who the Mets are starting. I mean, it was just announced an hour or two ago who the Mets are starting tomorrow. Orioles win 9-5. to five. How do you give up nine runs to the Orioles? Here's how. You throw in a bunch of no-names. You bring in a new guy, and you have a different pitcher coming in every two to three innings where they can't get in, into a groove. You have to trust the pitcher you put on the mound. Uh, Hordo gave up five runs, nine hits, and four innings. Unacceptable baseball by Hordo. I understand it's his first start, but you can't put him in that position if you're Luis Rojas on the Mets. There was a little excitement in this game when Andres Jimenez hit a home run in the sixth inning. He had the two-run home run. His first uh, big league home run, by the way. Uh, but then the Orioles go on to score four straight after the Mets tied it up at five. Uh, Franklin Kilom gave up uh, four runs, two home runs uh, in three innings. Renato Nunez had a nice uh, two home runs in this game, one off Wardo and then a solo shot off uh, Kilome. And now the Mets are on a five-game losing streak. So... Going into today, five-game losing streak. Now the Mets decide to pour all their offense in. Now they finally decide to do it. So Waka's on the mound. ERA over seven. Great, right? And John Means is on the mound. ERA over eight. So, you know, it's a, it's a couple of pitchers that have struggled this year. Waka, you know, he's a former Cy Young candidate. He's been up there amongst the top pitchers in the league. Conforto off to a great start. Hits a two-run bomb. And then... Uh, the Orioles, I believe they took the lead at one point. Uh, I believe it was, no, the Mets were up 2 nothing, and then the Orioles scored they a run, tied. and I think they tied the game. And then I believe, is it final yet? Yeah, 9-4. Yeah, 9-4 they won. So then the Mets score seven straight unanswered, 9-2. to two. Uh, You know, I got to give credit where credit is due. I thought David Peterson was fantastic today in his four innings. I think we need to see more out of David Peterson. Great to see him back off the IL, by the way. Uh, but I really liked what I saw from the Mets today. Their bats were there. You know, Dom Smith has been great. Pete Alonzo with another home run. I really like what I've been seeing from this team this year. Can but I, oh, good, there's still good. six games back in the division. So there's no movement, James. There's no movement. There's a bad to every good with this team, and I had to throw that in there. 
all good. Uh, Tom, I agree with you. There is no movement whatsoever with this team. It's a, it, it, I think I watched a full game the other night with uh, Kyle Earhart uh, on the show for a while. I feel sorry for you guys. You know, I forget what, you know, I, it was last Friday. Um, so we watched the game. I think I told him, I'm like, this is probably the only Met game I've seen all season. Um, but, Tom, I want to allude to what you were saying where we have these no-name guys coming up to pitch and they can't trust Rojas or whoever can't trust the guy on the mound. I've seen lately it's been every start besides mostly DeGrom's has been all bullpen starts because you don't know any of these guys. You don't know the names that they're putting up besides the Lugo, Gazelman, um, the Grom, you know, those kind of big name guys you're putting up there. Mostly every game is a bullpen start. So for the fact that like you at least want to come close above 500, your starters need to go longer than two innings and then right. use the bullpen every game. Yeah. Like, luckily, it's a 60-game season. If this was a full-blown season that started in end of March, early May, our bullpen would be shot. Understandable. I mean, it's just the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. Um, quick well, question for you guys real quick with the Mets. Okay. Do you guys think that Brody Van Wagen is back next season? No. Yes. Because it's the Mets. All right. Because that's a good answer. Mets. Even if Steve Cohen does take over, you think he's back? Yes. Okay. He, I, Steve Cohen's doing a lot of cleaning house. I, I feel like so we'll have to see. Kyle, the the Mets are the Cincinnati Bengals of the MLB. Well said. All right, so uh, <laughs> I had to throw that in there. Um, okay, so we got the Yankees here now. I'm kind of excited to talk about the Yankees because Aaron Judge got sent back to the IL. That's not what I'm I'm excited to talk about. I was going to say that's pretty uh, messed up. Switch that banner there, Kyle. Um, there we go. The Yankees, yes, we just recapped the Subway Series. They took three out of five from the Mets. They get LeMahieu back, Gio Urshela, great. And Zach Britton's back in the bullpen. This is perfect. Uh, this is a team that really needs it after they've lost a lot of games, majority of them to Tampa Bay, um, which we'll talk about Monday's game. They lost to Tampa 5-3. to three. I know they were down 5 nothing with Garrett Cole on the mound. That's never good when your ace is on the mound. But they did score three runs late. I've got to tell you, even though the Yanks have been struggling, the difference between them and the Mets is they always have fight. I, I think this year, more than ever, they're not swinging for the fences as much. They're trying to move the order in the lineup. They're trying to move down the line, Kyle. Um, I thought Glasnow was good. I mean, he was great. He had a no-hitter into the sixth inning. Garrett um, Cole was just horrible. He was just – he was really bad. He was really, really, really bad. And it was it was surprising because that was his – I believe that's his second loss of the season. But he just – he just did not look himself. Yes, he had five innings. He had seven strikeouts. He just looked bad. He he didn't look like this this pitcher that's supposed to be this guy that's supposed to carry you to the promised land. He gave up three runs in two innings, and you already knew in a sense that the game was going to be over just by the way the Yankees' bats have been performing as of late. Unless they're hitting a clutch bomb in the you know end of the seventh, they're not winning the game. Oh, totally. They're not winning the game. They didn't score their first run in that game until the bottom of the seventh inning. At that point in time, they were already down by four runs. Five runs, excuse me. So Cole drops the four and two on the season. Troy had a rocket in this yeah. game. He had a two-run shot. He's been nice. Um, 
then glass now uh six scoreless innings nine strikeouts you can't ask for anything more than that yeah um tuesday the yanks beat the rays five to three so reverse um same score but just reverse the outcome uh tanaka gets his first win of the season masahiro tanaka looking sharp on the mound went six strong uh two run ball seven strikeouts Chapman, I believe Chapman got his first save of the season, I want to say. I think, that, um, yeah, that's his first save of the season. Yeah, he was, was good. Now, there was a little controversy at this game we'll get to momentarily. The Yanks scored three runs in the sixth inning. Off uh, There was a two-run double hit by Gio Urshela, uh, which turned him into scoring an inside-the-park home run. Now, I don't think that was official because he scored on errors. There was a throwing error by Willie Adamas, I believe, uh, the shortstop, and... There was a throw home after that error that seemed to beat the tag, but Gio did a nice little uh, swim move around the tag. Yeah, kind of yeah. like a river. Uh, and then the Rays weren't okay with that. You know, they they thought he was out. They thought he yeah. was out. But Kyle, uh, just break down that play for us. It was unbelievable. I thought he was out. I thought there was no shot that he was getting to home plate, and he did. And it's just... You know, th- this is what I'm talking about. This is how the Yankees have been winning games. They're not playing full nine-inning games. They're playing the last three innings of each baseball game, and that's when they're showing up. The pitching is doing good enough to make sure that they're staying in the games through the first five. And then six through nine, which they haven't even been playing as of late, most of their games have only been seven-inning games, eight innings max, you know, if you're playing the Mets, because th- that always goes to the eighth inning. But... <laughs> They're not playing nine inning games. They're showing up in the last three innings, and that's it. And that's where they're scoring their runs. And that's what happened here. Uh, a, a mistake gets them a win. You know, you saw that with the Mets, Dylan Batantis. A mistake got them the win. They're not winning it based on their own, you know, strategy or what they're doing by themselves. They're winning based off of other teams' errors. Obviously, a good thing taking advantage of it. But it's just, you know, even these wins, they don't feel good. They feel more like relief. Like. Yeah. Oh, man, just keep it in there until hopefully these guys come back off the I.L. Now, Russo, um, you're still with that. I just want to confirm on who you're still without. You're still without Judge and Stanton. Is that correct? And Glaber. Okay. So, Tom, your your point earlier where they're putting the ball more in play, it's also we don't they don't have um, Stanton or Judge. Yeah. You know, those two big powerhouse guys. So I think actually putting the ball in place, benefiting the Yankees more because you're moving down that lineup within the inning. Uh, th- that's my logic. Well, the Yankees have a really deep team, and I-, I think regardless of who you have in play, you're going to miss the Twin Towers. You're, you're going to oh, yeah. miss them when they're not in your lineup. I think they bring a different dynamic to the game that other players just don't. As great as Mike Talkman, Clint Frazier, Mike Ford are, they're not Aaron Judge, they're not Giancarlo Stanton, they're not DJ LeMahieu. And they're not Glaber, right? So, you know, I look at this Yankees team and I see, you know, what their ceiling is this year. And quite frankly, it's still winning the World Series, even if they come in as a wild card, quite frankly. Yep. Um, let me get to that pitch by Chapman in the ninth inning. Um, he threw a 100 mile per hour fastball behind pinch hitter Mike Brousseau's head, uh, who just did a home run today, by the way. Yeah, uh, I know. And Already- Chapman uh, ended up striking him out. Brasso gave him a look, and then the benches emptied. Um, why was this pitch thrown? Do you think Chapman just lost his control? I don't think that this pitch was thrown intentionally, but if you watch the game earlier on, um, the Yankees pitcher did 
it looked like he intentionally threw at a player. I forgot which player that he did hit. But that could have been why frustration had built. And, you know, of course, Chapman being the fastest throwing pitcher in, in the league, throwing a 101-mile-per-hour fastball at somebody's head, you know, let alone hit any other part of your body is dangerous. To, to throw it at your head is – it could get some teams furious. You know, they didn't – you just got to – and then the fact afterwards, after you struck him out, you know, you're talking and you're giving them a stare, you know, instead of just, you know, apologizing or saying, hey, you know, I didn't mean to do that, you know, looking down from the mound is not – it's not really the right thing to do, especially when this team, granted, this is your first win against this team all season long. They have smacked you around. Yeah. This is game seven, and this is the first one in which you, either the seventh matchup or the eighth matchup in which they've had, and this is the first one you came away with a win, and you do something like that, and then, you know, don't go over to the guy and say, hey, that wasn't intentional. And, you know, I'm gonna, this is not me defending my Yankees either because they, they were in the wrong. They were in the wrong. Aaron Boone did get a one-game suspension. Uh, for his commentary, uh, our oldest Chapman did get three games as well. Kevin Cash, though, the manager, he went to the press conference. He said everything right up until his last sentence where you can't – I know it's in the heat of the moment. You can't say this, though. He went out and said, you know, I could have my guys throw out their 98-mile-per-mile uh, mile, uh, power fastballs, too. You can't say that. You can't say that. That's basically saying, hey, I'm going to throw my guys out there and they're going to hit you guys too. Right. You can't, yeah, you you can't, can't do, do that, that as a professional. You can't have that happen. I get it. It's the heat of the moment. I was actually kind of surprised that he didn't get any fine or suspension as well um, as just a uh, you know, comeback. But, again, it, I, I don't think that the 101 was intentional. You know, taunting a guy afterwards doesn't really help your, uh, yeah. doesn't help your yeah. statement. And uh, uh, a player being hit earlier in the game doesn't help your claim either. But it's just, it's a bad situation. It's going to hurt them now because now they already have a depleted bullpen and now you're losing Chapman, who's your closer, who you finally just got back. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, not to mention um, the Rays GM, Yankees manager Aaron Boone is fine. Chapman was fine as well. Chapman is actually suspended for three games. Yeah. Uh, and then tonight, it's Jordan Montgomery on the mound for the Yanks against Charlie Morton of Tampa Bay. Great to see Charlie Morton back. Uh, that game started at 7.05, and the Rays are leading 4 nothing over the Yankees right now. And I believe that game is still in the first inning, I want to say. The bottom of the first just uh, closed out, I believe. They just This is what yep. I mean. They just For some reason, the Rays have gotten into their heads, and they can't get anything going. Giving up a home run to... Randy Arozanera, who is playing in his fourth game, in his fourth game, and Brousseau as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Jordan Montgomery already has 40 pitches in the first inning. Uh, he was taken out of the game, actually. He lasted two-thirds of an inning. He gave up four runs, five hits, two home runs. Uh, fun fact. Um, Not fun. Okay, so right, and the Yankees are three and a half behind of Tampa, so this is obviously very pivotal for them to find a way to come back and win this game. But the good news is, Kyle, you have the Mets tomorrow. Um, I can't even say that with confidence anymore that it's a win. I can't even. And then you have the you have a weekend series against the Baltimore Orioles, including a doubleheader on Friday. Okay, so 
That'll do it for baseball for now. At this time, we're going to bring on our guest, uh, Minnesota Vikings superfan and the newest member of Review and Preview, Gabe Flayton. Gabe, welcome. Hello. What's up, guys? Tom, James, Kyle. I'm uh, I'm excited. We got next week doing the uh, North Pole. As James brought that up, he get, he created the idea of that show name, uh, and it's going to be an NFC North specifically geared toward NFC North uh, fans, Vikings, Packers, Bears, Lions. It's one of the most interesting divisions. Talk about all the NFL, but for anybody who's interested in that, it'll be Tuesdays at 6, I believe. Yeah, it's going to be really nice. It's going to debut this upcoming Tuesday here on Review and Preview Sports, the North Pole with our host, Gabe Flayton. Gabe, uh, you've been a consistent guest for us over the past four to five months as a nice little reward. And, uh, you know, we're looking forward to having you on the team. And, you know, I know you had me on some of your sports shows back up at Albany uh, over the phone line. So that was fun as well um, for the time being. And, um, yeah, we're just excited to have you join the team. But we have you here tonight to talk about your Minnesota Vikings. I know last week we had you on the whole show to talk uh, about Matt Prino with the Buffalo Bills, and quite frankly, Minnesota has been making some very alarming moves this week uh, with the centerpiece being the acquisition of former Jaguars defensive end Yannick Ngakwe. Yeah, and you mentioned before Matt Prino with the Bills. He he, he was a good uh, – he, he had a lot of nice things to say about Stephon Diggs. Later, if we have time, I want to go. I want to break down the the Bills because we never really got to talk about that last week, like who won the trade. But, yeah, the Jaguars, we just made a big trade here. And this time we were giving up the picks. We weren't getting them in return. But what's funny about the the trade is it's for a second-round pick in 2021 and then I believe a 2022 conditional fifth-rounder. And that conditional is dependent upon Ngakwe's performance. If he in 2020 uh, makes the Pro Bowl, that pick will become a fourth round pick. If the Vikings win the Super Bowl and Ngakwe makes the Pro Bowl, then the pick becomes a third round pick. But I mean, <laughs> at that point, if they won the Super Bowl, a third round or not, I, I really couldn't care less. They could take Ngakwe back, honestly, at that point. <laughs> because that's how I see this trade. At this point, what do we have to lose? We just restructured. Riley Reef's contract, we cut about ten million or so, I would assume, off his contract because we were we had two hundred thousand dollars after this trade. So we had to cut a ton of money in his contract. He was due he signed a five year fifty seven million dollar contract a few years back. He's going into his last two years now. And this trade just gave us the two best young defensive ends in the league, nothing to lose. We, for all that we care, we don't have to re-sign him after this year. We can win a Super Bowl, and we can afford to get rid of him. But I don't want to get rid of him. I do like this guy. To, to, I'm sorry, Tom, you go. No, I was just going to say, I think this move is very important because Ngakwe took a pay cut just to be with Minnesota. It's part of a one-year $12 million deal as a part of the trade because the Vikings were unable to retain pretty much their whole defensive line with the exception of Shamar Steven. They lost Steve Weatherly, Everson Griffin, and um, Linval Joseph. Linval Joseph. I know they still have uh, Daniel Hunter as well, 
But um, I think Ngakwe kind of helps out that defensive line. And I believe Minnesota, I don't know if they just signed or traded for a tackle as well. I don't think we just got a tackle. We've been moved. We moved Ezra Cleveland over to guard. Uh, oh, I, meant, uh, I, I don't think, are you talking offensive tackle? No, I meant, I meant defense. Cause Pierce tackle, we right now we are working with whoever we have there. It's, it's, it's really thin. Uh, they said, Odenibo, he was going to be our starting defensive end. Who's in his third year. He had seven sacks last year. He's a really good rotational pass rusher. He's going to get moved interior. But what's crazy is I found this out. I was going through uh, Spo. It's called Spo Track or something, or and it has all the salary cap listings in the NFL. Now the Vikings in 2019 had the seventh most expensive defensive line because they had Everson Griffin, and now in 2020 they have the 15th most expensive defensive line. We're talking they got they went eight spots back and got Ngakwe instead of Griffin. They are. There was nothing that harmed them in this trade. It is unreal. It really is. I can't believe that Jacksonville pulled the trigger on it. I really couldn't. You know, all these, I mean, you heard Jacksonville was rumored to want at least one first round pick and to pull the plug on a, a second and a fifth round conditional pick is, is very disappointing sitting here as a Giants fan, considering <laughs> that just, um, just a year ago, um, the Giants had pulled the trigger on a third round and a fifth round conditional for Leonard Williams. Yep. So one round difference, and you see the production standpoint of what I'm getting to. Now, Gabe, I got a quick question for you. With yeah. all you know, with COVID going on and players opting out, player now, how does that play into effect with these conditional picks? Uh, that's a good question. It doesn't seem like the conditional picks are going to be affected by that. Um, it didn't seem like that was in, uh, in the terms. I do think, um, it's affected the Vikings already at the defensive line. Michael Pierce, he opted out, which is going to make a difference now in the long term with re-signing Ngakwe, uh, after this year, because now you have Michael Pierce, who's going to be, he's a top five defensive tackle, uh, that won't be playing this year, but I don't think within the terms of the agreement, COVID has anything to do with the trade. Okay. No, I, I, was, I was just curious because yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. conditional picks, there's so many other things that are involved, and I wasn't sure if that was one of the things thrown into. We got that. a good deal. That's all I got to say. It's, now, Rick Spielman's now, a genius. Yeah. Now, Gabe, I have to ask you about this because it's blowing up my phone all day this morning, and obviously you saw it once I say it. What do you think of this Kirk Cousins commentary? What, what is your breakdown of this commentary? You know, specifically – yeah, this is this was my first instinct when I thought about it. I thought about Michael Pierce immediately having to personally sit out the season because he was not, you know, fit to play necessarily under the conditions in which COVID has. Now, to make that kind of statement, knowing, you know, one of those players is on your team. You know, I get where you're coming from, but at the same time, you can't say that. I, I feel like that's a that's a line that's being crossed that you just can't say, even if it's your own personal opinion about yourself. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And Cousins, it, he's he's from. I mean, he's he's a Southern guy. He's tough. He's really religious. He's really Christian. I don't know if that has anything to do with this, but he's not. He doesn't seem like a guy who really believes in the science on this one and that's that's just something that we can argue about all day and cousins just 
created a, a complete giant hole for himself. And now he's distracting the team by this becoming a bigger issue. He was never one to attract attention to himself. He was always a very humble guy. This just doesn't seem like a cousin's thing to do. Uh, he's humble, but this was just a really uncalculated thing that his agent is probably ripping him apart for saying. Um, so, and yeah, with Michael Pierce too, very insensitive with his new teammate, Michael Pierce, who this directly affects. Um, so Kirk Cousins, I'm talking to you. Wear your mask and your kids. I'm going to disagree with you guys a little bit. Um, and Emmanuel H.O. made a good comment before. Uh, I think the headlines are very deceiving. I think his words were slightly twisted. I know for a fact that he disagrees with wearing the mask because that's what people were saying. You know, I think you should, I I don't think masks should be required. I think they should be recommended, but you can't force somebody to wear one. It's one thing if you disagree with wearing a mask, but I think that comment, you know, if I die, I die. I think that was taken a little bit out of line by the media and they twisted his word a little bit to stir up drama that wasn't even there. That's just my take on it, but. He should wear. A, he should play football without a helmet if he's going to go out in public without a mask. Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> um, that's definitely interesting. But uh, question about Ngakwe. Gabe. Yeah, uh, I know we talked about the logistics of the trade, but I want to ask you a question about Ngakwe personally. Uh, what impresses you about him the most, and how does he change the environment of this defensive line? I love that question because that's literally the first thing I wanted to know when I heard about the trade. I didn't really I, – the first thing I did was not look at a highlight video of him. I read, I watched interviews of him. I wanted to see who he was as a person. I knew he was a great football player. But after watching his interviews, the guy is sharp, he's quick, and he's dominant. He's a dominant speaker. When people are interviewing him, he becomes the dominant voice. He intimidates people in press conferences, reporters, not in a bad way. He doesn't deflect questions. He's just so tough and so no nonsense. The guy, he comes to play. He's not into creating drama. He's not a diva. That's for sure. Anybody who says he left Jacksonville because he was a diva, that's not true. He just knew his worth. And that's what he told reporters. He says, I know my worth. And he showed up to practice. He didn't hold out. He, he came practiced every day, did everything like he was an athlete. Uh, like he was a part of the team. He was loyal until they didn't want to re-sign him. And then they uh, traded him away. But he did say very clearly he wanted to go to a team that was not only a winner, but he wanted to make a difference in the community. And I love that about him. He wanted to be in a community where he can help people. And Minnesota is a community right now that needs a lot of help. And their football team has always been a source of inspiration for their community. Uh, the fans in Minnesota, I mean, I'm in New York, but in Minnesota, these guys are crazy about their Vikings and I know they're really close with all the players they uh and I think he's going to make a great impact on the community maybe a future man of the year after uh Kyle Rudolph of course who's won it like six times in a row for Minnesota (laughs) so you know that's an interesting comment there Gabe you know I also forgot didn't they get Eddie Yarbaugh they got him too in free agency I think they acquired him so it'll be interesting to see where he fits in but um as you can continue to hike your way up the North Pole there, um, <laughs> switching gears a little bit, um, the Vikings agree to, as you mentioned, the restructured contract with Riley Reef, which I think is important so that you can keep O'Neill at right tackle. Um, but I still think there's a hole on this offensive line, and I think it's that right guard position. I'm just not quite sure who starts there for Minnesota. 
Yeah, exactly. And right now they spend 28th. Uh, they have the 28th most expensive. I shouldn't word it like that, but they spend the 28th most on offensive line in the league. So they're not investing a lot of money here. Um, Riley Reef was their highest paid, and he's one of their more underperforming uh, linemen. And yeah, right guard actually is going to be Pat Elfline, who is left guard. They moved him over to the right side. So you're, it would be the left guard now. That's the biggest question. And right now, we talked about this in spring uh, around draft time when we were making right. mock drafts for Minnesota. Dakota Dozier is looking like the left guard, and I was vehemently really? against that. I don't know if any of you are Jets fans, but Dakota Dozier yeah. was on the Jets for a decent amount of time. The guy, I think he's like a 61 overall in Madden. Um, <laughs> and that's all I can gauge offensive linemen with, to be honest. He's just not good. He's not good. And the Vikings struggle. And um, – at that position, Garrett Bradbury as a rookie. And now I think he's going into his third year. He had, he definitely was not really stepping up like we thought he would as a first round pick. We've had tough luck with offensive linemen in the last five or six years. Ever since we had like Bryant McKinney back in the day, we had Brian McKinney, Steve Hutchison, John Sullivan, some really big names at the Phil Lodehall back in the day, some really big names at offensive line. We just haven't gotten that position and we just haven't invested in it, and we're drafted well. At Burke, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's yeah. a classic. NFL yeah, 3, I remember he was on. 2000 NFC Championship game, baby, yeah, against the Giants. Beast. Yeah. Um, I think it needs to be Reef, Cleveland, Bradbury, um, F-Line, and um, O'Neal. I think that needs to be the five because – I think Dozier should be a swing, and you picked Cleveland as high as you did, a second-round pick. What do you think? He needs the experience, and I think uh, playing next to a guy like Riley Reef could certainly benefit him in a sense. I mean, eventually if he has to flash out to left tackle. Yeah, Cleveland, he's been only practicing with the second and third teams right now. I don't think he, – he hasn't grown into his body yet. He's still very slim and – his his physicality at the guard position, that's a position you got to be really strong, but I do like his speed. Pat Elfline has been hindered by injuries. He doesn't have a great amount of athleticism. Bradbury can move. Uh, O'Neal can move. And Reef can't really move. So now you have this left side of the line that you really got to get some guys who can move there because Do- Dozier and, and Reef are just not guys who can get out onto that left side. If you remember watching them last year, they would always toss the ball to the right. And I've talked to you about this on our show. It was always Dalvin Cook tossed to the right, and then they'd toss it to the left, and it would get stifled because yeah. those guys on that left side of the line can't move. You got a point. You got a, definitely got a good point, Gabe. Um, I want to talk about um, Jacksonville as well, right, with you, the, the team that um, sent Minnesota, Yannick and Gakwe, what do you think of their return personally? Because we know they just waived Leonard Fournette Monday morning. So now they pretty much lost their two best players on the roster. Yeah. And right now, cap space, I mean, is is really just awesome for them. They have no – they have the 30th – they spend the 30th most on offense and 31st in defense. They don't spend any money anywhere except for one position, and that's linebacker with Miles Jack. So they, they're just starting fresh. I mean, 
they are a fresh start, kind of like what the Dolphins did, except now they went out in free agency and became a brand new team. I just think this trade was really geared towards becoming a new team, uh, new culture, three years removed from an AFC championship run with a mediocre quarterback, is which was really impressive. Credit to their defense, but Jalen Ramsey, I think, just was the uh, domino that made the uh, entire organization go down because his departure just immediately spurred all this uh, to occur. And quarterback instability, Nick Foles last year didn't do much. They they spend no – they are the 32nd uh, 32nd in spending at quarterback. So Gardner Minshew is the least paid starting quarterback in the NFL. Um, I don't know. They have so much money. <laughs> they can do a lot with it. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you, Gabe, you bring up a great point. They have so much money, but they had so much money a couple of years ago, and that's where it ultimately failed. They paid Calais Campbell. They paid A.J. Bouye, and you know, that lasted for one good season. I actually heard a quote today. I don't remember who it was from. Well, I actually really thought about it a lot. And they said, and, and this is not word for word, they said the worst decision that Jacksonville ever did was thinking that taking a running back with the fourth overall pick was going to betterment the team when everybody knew that Blake Bortles was the weakness. Having Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes on the board and picking a running back and thinking that was going to be the that was going to be the savior to relieve pressure off Blake Bortles when we all know that was the major issue. Whether team, listen, I'm going to make this argument to this day. Any other quarterback behind center, that team goes to the Super Bowl over the New England Patriots. Any other team, any other quarterback, any other Ooh. quarterback in the NFL right now, any other one. I mean you. He was well, – got to remember in that game, Leonard Fournette was also shut down in that game completely. They couldn't even use him. Yeah. And then having well, Blake Bortles forced him to play at his position, which is quarterback, ultimately is what led to the downfall of the team. That's when Jalen Ramsey started getting, you know, I want to be out of here. That's when the rest of the team started losing focus and losing uh, passion and will to want to win. That's when they completely fell off as a team that next season when everybody thought – you know, Saxonville was going to be this next <laughs> dominant force for the next five years, and it lasted one great season. And the outcome is that they have ultimately nothing to show for well, it. Nobody. I, I'm going to disagree with you again because, look, I, I mean, you guys know I, I have, you know, I, I know people from Jacksonville. Uh, you know, I, I was there a couple summers ago, and, you know, my uncle was telling me, like, all the Jaguars fans there, they liked Blake Bortles. You don't, don't need an elite quarterback to win the big game. You don't need an elite quarterback. It's been proven in the past. And I think the problem is Bortles didn't have a supporting cast. If you're a quarterback of his caliber, you need an elite supporting cast. I blame it more on the franchise and the ownership rather than Blake Bortles. I understand he did not have a great game. But when your receivers aren't creating separation, your offensive line committed six penalties in the game. And, you know, the strength of your team is basically the special teams. You're kicking field goals the whole time, and your defense is fantastic, right? It minimizes your flaws as a quarterback, where I think Bortles, he, look, he could have made some better throws, but we, we can't forget this guy threw for, did, I think he had one year where he threw for 5,000 yards. That right? was like his first second season or two? It was like I'm not saying Blake Bortles was a good NFL quarterback. I don't think he was. That's the reason why he's not in the league currently uh, on any team, even as a backup, but... At that time, at that present moment, I think Jacksonville somewhat failed their players. I'm not trying to single out Blake Bortles as an individual, but I'm saying the team around them, the ownership with Khan, even when Tom Coughlin was there, it wasn't great. 
It wasn't great because Coughlin has that old school mentality. He doesn't care what you think. Nobody's entitled to nothing. And then if players got into his face, he just told them off, right? That works more as a head coach than a GM, especially in the NFL. Um, I just don't necessarily think that um, – look, I understand Bortles. He wasn't great, but I think with the quarterbacks Jacksonville was used to prior to him, the Byron Leftwiches, the David Garrards, those guys, uh, you know, he was one of the most successful quarterbacks they had there since Mark Brunell. So, um, but yeah, Bortles, he's not, he's definitely not great. Um, James, thank you for sharing this. Uh, this just in the New York Giants acquire cornerback Isaac Yadam from yes. the Denver Broncos. And uh, Tom, I was actually finishing typing it out, but you pointed out, so I'll just read it. Um, so he's uh, from the Broncos for a seventh round draft pick, um, a 2018 third round selection for the Broncos. Um, the guy Tom just mentioned uh, started eight games for Denver Denver in 2018. Um, and, yeah, so he is now helping the Giants out. You know, but, he's going to uh, make the team trading of a draft pick. But. It's going to be interesting when we talk to Lance Meadow about that tomorrow on our uh, Giants show. But, Gabe, um, Jacksonville, actually, it's funny. They only have 12 players left from their 2017 yeah. AFC Championship game roster. There is no longer Saxonville. The last pieces are now gone. Um, and I'm looking at their depth chart. Who's going to start at running back right now? It's Chris Thompson. It's Chris Thompson starting week one. I mean, how atrocious is that? Like, I don't know, um, like, who's going to go out there, but. Um, yeah, I, I'll add well, to that. I, it's funny you say that. I was looking for, for fits, good fits for Leonard Fournette. And I'm going through teams that need a running back, and I. The only team I could figure out what, what would make the best fit for Leonard Fournette right now is the Jaguars. <laughs> I'm like, this team, it was funny because there's really only two other teams that he can go to right now that I that I could find out. I think the Saints uh, should make a jump on him personally. I think they should get rid of Murray. And uh, there was another team. I don't know if it was the Bucks that I uh, – I have it somewhere in my notes. But there's, yeah. there's not a lot of teams out there really that can uh, use a running back of his – of his caliber and give him the money that he deserves. hundred percent. Um, now I sit here and I look at this defensive line guys that they have Josh Allen, who started four games last year, four games. That was it as a rookie. Uh, Taven Bryan started eight games last year. This is their most experience on starting in the NFL. And they have two rookies and Clavon Chasson and Devon Hamilton in the middle. Um, young, young defensive line. Is it talented? Yes. But again, their defense now might even be their weakness too. I just don't personally see them winning more than four games this year. Yeah, no, their division is, their division is way too tough now. It, yeah. It's going to be virtually almost impossible just to win the divisional games. You look at the Colts, you know, what are they going to be potentially with Phillip Rivers and, you know, hopefully a healthy team this season. The Tennessee Titans just took the took the league by storm last year. Now them coming back as well, and then you look at Houston and you, and you say, what is what is Houston potentially going to be? You know, that's really the wild card in that division. I think that we could all agree if we had to pick if we had to pick a team right now who we could say not with ease, but we could in a sense kind of know what team is going to be the worst team in the league. I, I'd put my money on Jacksonville. I'd put my money on Jacksonville just because my one thing with Jacksonville is that. I don't think that they have faith in Gardner Menchu. 
even though they gave Nick Foles a massive contract to take Gardner Menchu out at quarterback, even though he was having some flawed games, not necessarily his fault, it shows that they don't necessarily believe in him. And I think that takes a real toll on the team. You're getting rid of his offensive weapon, one of his best weapons, a security blanket, two weeks before the season. You know, what is that? Not even two weeks before the season. What does that say to him? You know, you have guys like DJ Chark potentially. You guys got, have guys like Chris Connolly. Uh, um, I forget the, uh, the, the wide receiver's name who they just drafted out of Colorado State. Uh, in this LaVishka Chenault. LaVishka Chenault, who's going to be great. They still really don't have a tight end. I think they signed Tyler Eifert, who hasn't, who, you know, we joke about the Cincinnati Bengals. He hasn't played consistently since like three, four years ago. They're giving this guy no help. They're giving this guy no help, and they're getting rid of all their best assets and really not getting that much into return, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, I personally like Tyler Eifert. I'm a big fan of his. No, I am too, he but, to Notre Dame, but he just hasn't been healthy, and that's the, his biggest weakness. Yeah, he hasn't played more than four games in a season since 2000. Well, he hasn't started more than four games in a season since 2015. Last year, Eifert was healthy the entire season, but he only started four games. So before this year... He didn't start over eight games since 2015. That was his one Pro Bowl season uh, where he had the 13 touchdown reception. So we know his potential and what type of player he could be. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be a challenge for them. But um, the AFC is going to be a very challenging conference this year, and it all starts with the defending uh, you know, Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs. They just gave head coach Andy Reid. Uh, a six-year contract extension. He's going to be there. And it's looking really good for the Chiefs now, especially – because the Chargers, uh, they just found out safety Derwin James is going to need surgery. He'll be out six to eight months, so he's done for the year. Uh, yeah, what do you guys think of uh, Kansas City and that AFC South? I know they're without Damian Williams, but a lot of people are really high on Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. They are, they are right. They're this close to me calling them, you know, the next dynasty. They're this close. It, it has to... A Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is the, is the question mark in this offense. We obviously know that Patrick Mahomes doesn't necessarily need that type of help. We saw what he did last season with um, Damien Williams as the running back, as Kareem Hunt was released and then obviously signed by the Browns. That was really the starting running back. Didn't even really go to him as an option. You know, really saw that spark in running back position in the Super Bowl, let alone not really throughout the entire season. But that's going to be the question mark. Otherwise, they got – like the two fastest receivers in all of football and the whole Hardman and uh, Tyree kills going to beat any corner off the line to begin with. You got a top two tight end, maybe even number one tight end in all of football right now. And Travis Kelsey, yep. you have arguably the most perennial athletic superstar quarterback that the world has ever seen as your quarterback. And you got him locked up. You got Andy Reed who finally got over that hump and won a championship. This team Chris Jones is now back on a contract. You re-signed Frank Clark as well. You keep all your assets. I believe, Tom, uh, I'm going to say this again. I, I, don't, I can't remember exactly. You returned what? They returned 20 of their 22 starters from a Super Bowl championship 19. team. 19 of a 22-starter championship yep. football team. And I think the, the one, uh, the, the tackle, who's the one that opted out, that would have been the 20th. But that doesn't happen either. Usually after a Super Bowl, that's when everybody gets their payday and everybody goes their own separate ways. This team is set for the next five years. They are set. They are set, and they're going to keep on winning because their division keeps on getting worse. You know, they got the Broncos in there, Jerry Judy and K.J. Hamler, who I think are going to be fantastic, all depend on what Vic Fangio as a defensive mind does with that team. Um, 
on top of what Drew Locke does. The Las Vegas Raiders, I love some John Gruden, but I need to see some production out of Derek Carr to really have some faith in there. And then the Chargers, like you said, Tom, they're, you know, rookie quarterback in there. Tyrod Taylor's probably going to get the start. I love Anthony Lynn. You know, is Austin Eckler a starting running back in this league? I don't, I don't know necessarily. Mike Williams, Keenan Allen really got to step up. Hunter Henry has been injury prone. Losing your best defensive player again now for the entire year. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is easily division title winners, you know, let alone potential Super Bowl champions. It's rough. Yeah, it's rough. Um, they get, they, uh, everybody got their ring. Yeah. Did you, uh, just a quick side note. Did you see Andy Reid's comments? Yeah. You, um, you show that ring around, you're getting a cheeseburger anywhere in Kansas City. Yep. The, and then, uh, Russ, uh, Patrick Mahomes' girlfriend got she a got ring. a ring too. It's ring season. Yeah. So moving on, just want to talk about the Giants here. They signed Logan Ryan to a one year deal. Um, you know, you look at the cornerbacks now. They just acquired Isaac Yadam, and um, you know the Raiders just recently re- uh, released Prince Amu Kamara. So now he actually stated it would be awesome to return to the Giants, get a second chance. So. Um, Gabe, I know you personally, you're um, the Vikings fan here. What do you think of that Logan Ryan signing? I think it was pretty crazy that he wasn't already on a team based on his resume. Um, But for one year, I mean, it's a guy that can give you some stability at the position. If he has a really good year, you bring him back. Um, There's just so little you can do this late in the year. You can't count on a young guy to step up. It'll, it'll be a nightmare. How many times have the Giants had really young guys in their secondary just get torched uh, because they're there prematurely? So getting Logan Ryan at least – like with Bethea last year, I actually kind of liked what I saw from Bethea, and I'm usually anti-getting somebody old. Uh, you liked Bethea? I actually Were didn't mind Were you watching the same much. football games as I was? <laughs> I, I actually didn't mind him. I mean, I was watching Janoris Jenkins on the other side, and I was laughing because Listen, he, everything, he everything on that defense. But I, I thought because – I thought Janoris Jenkins was the worst one on that defense. I didn't mind Bethea, but I maybe I didn't watch enough games. You guys probably know better than me. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about passes thrown over the middle, blown coverage is every single play we're talking yeah. about with Bethea. Yeah. But, um, He's old. He, he's not on the team anymore, I presume. No, they. I think they released him. But, um, Logan Ryan is a better replacement. Yeah, Logan Ryan, I think he's going to be fantastic. Like you said, Gabe, I was surprised that he was even on the market. He had his best career season-wise this past offseason. And to get a guy two weeks before the season on a one-year, $7.5 million deal, I thought that was cheap, to be quite honest with you. A cornerback uh, with the stats that he put up last season, uh, four interceptions, had the most pass deflections of his career most interceptions of his career, most combined tackles of his career, uh, fantastic postseason. You know, he was the he was the clutch go-ahead to get the interception against Tom Brady to run it back into the end zone. To, to, to even get this guy on the market, that's going to – that tandem of Logan Ryan and James Bradbury in the secondary is going to be a complete 180 of what we saw from that secondary last year. And so, not to mention – sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. No, uh, no. Peppers, and if they ever get McKinney back – now you have Darnay Holmes and Julian Love as backups, and now adding Isaac uh, Yadam, who I just found out started eight games last year for the Denver Broncos. Yep. So, quite frankly, this was a good pickup. I think this um, 
you know, I, I don't know. I mean, look, the, the Giants might end up keeping a lot of cornerbacks. I only have them keeping five, but now they 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 might they might keep six. I think there's a lot of guys with the practice squad expanding. A lot of these young cornerbacks. Uh, I think this is a year for veterans, guys. This isn't a year for undrafted rookies. It's not a it's not a year for late round picks. No. You're going to see a lot of those guys either get cut or end up on the practice squad. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I'm going to touch on here is the Giants. They brought back veteran center John Halapio today. And they signed wide receiver Johnny Holton, a special teams gunner, former Steeler. And they cut Jaquarius Landrews and Jackson Dennis in transacting moves. I personally do not like John Jalapio. John Jalapio was best friends with Brett Jones, who I believe is still on the Minnesota Vikings, Gabe, if I'm not mistaken. I, I don't think Brett Jones is. He They got rid of him real soon. That's why they drafted um, Garrett Bradbury. We never actually hung on to Brett Jones. He was a center, right? He, I think it says he's still there. Hold on. Really? Well, yeah. I don't get, huh? I mean, I, I've never seen him play a snap on our team. Uh, center Bradbury locks up the center spot. Uh, yeah. Well, for a guy who I think was PFF's worst center last year, um, we if he's still there. Yeah, he might be. Jones and Jalapio were best friends. And then what happened was Jalapio beat out Jones. And now that they got Spencer Pulley, they got Nick Gates, I just personally don't like this move at all. I mean, Kyle and I will talk about it more tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting how a lot of these final rosters shake up. And I know Minnesota has a lot of young kids in their secondary as well. Guys like Holton Hill, Jeff Gladney, um, you know, guys that they drafted. Cameron Dantzler, too, I think they got. So that'll be fun. And then they got that safety, all oh, that backup safety. They really happen to like. I can't think of his name at the Josh Metellus. Uh Yeah, but there's there's actually one other now. Another oh. one. Yeah. Um, let me pull it up here. Is it a Notre Dame guy? It might have been a Notre Dame no, guy. No, it's. Uh, you think of safety, or you thinking of Troy Die, Tom? Yeah, no, you might be thinking of Troy Die. No, Dan Chasena from Penn State. Well, they say has a chance to make the fifty-three man roster. So, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. Cut down day is only three days away, but um, Gabe, we're actually going to have you on for another couple minutes, uh, and then we'll let you go. Uh, we're going to transition. Team of the week is back. So basically, what this is, this is a fun short segment where we go across the board of all sports. It can be anything, not just the Big Four where we name our team of the week, a team that we personally think deserves this accolade. Um, and without further ado, uh, James, we will start with you. Who is your team of the week and why? My team of the week. Well, let's see. Probably, even though I'm going to hold my tongue to say some other things, some good things, though, um, I would be going with my boys behind me. But after last night, I don't want to say anything. Better uh, not jinx it. No, no, that, that's, what, that, that's why I'm not saying anything. Uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah. They sent Boston packing with Wick. their Boston Lagers back to Boston. I was trying to do a Boston accent there. It um, didn't work out well. But, no, yeah, I, I got that's a good accent. team. Um, that's a great pick there. I mean, that one game, they had, what, seven goals, was it? Yeah, something like so, that. Uh, we'll touch upon them later on in the show, but I'm going with the Tampa Bay Lightning, even though uh, we'll see what happens. Kyle, you are next. I'm going to go with the Denver Nuggets. 
I'm going to go with the Denver Nuggets. It was an unbelievable feat. Um, that game seven last night was absolutely incredible. Came down to literally the final second of the game where Mike Connolly pulls up from the three-point line, rims out, would have been the game winner. But Denver Nuggets come down from a 3-1 deficit against this Utah Jazz team, look absolutely hopeless. And Jamal Murray, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I think he scored 145 points in three games. Absolutely took over the league. I think uh, I saw this stat line. Him and Donovan Mitchell combined scored for 450 points, I want to say, something around that, something around those numbers in this series, which was the most by any starting tandem that an NBA playoff series has ever seen. Yeah. Jamal Murray carried this team on his back to the final play of the game in which he wound up stealing the ball away uh, from Donovan Mitchell. I believe he intercepted the pass, or was it Torrey Craig? It was one of the two. Um, but Jamal Murray carry this team to the promised land as they now go on to face i want to say do they face they face whoever wins the okc houston series right or no the nuggets will play the clippers the nuggets will play the clippers it's going to be an interesting matchup it's going to be an interesting matchup but we'll see what happens but that's my team of the week uh gabe i'm going to put you on a spot here who is your team of the week well since i'm on the spot and i probably I'm usually more original, but I would say it's the Vikings just because of the the previous half hour of us discussing what they've done and how from a organizational standpoint, I would say they have completely – I would give this – this is less of a team of the week and more of a general manager of the week award. I'd give it to Minnesota. They won – general manager is who should be responsible when a team wins because they put that team together and – uh Right now, the Vikings have an elite roster, um, and they're they're practicing really hard right now. I mean, they seem like a team that's been laser focused, um, and with Ngakwe now that defense is um, just loaded. I, before I before I leave, I just want to put out there. I, I watched Chris Sims, who had some words about the Vikings, and I've mentioned it to you. Now, I would love to have a conversation with Chris Sims about Minnesota Vikings. Mike Florio seems like he knows a lot about the Vikings. He writes about them a lot. But Chris Sims, don't interview him about Minnesota. He told Mike Florio on his show that the Vikings had no other star besides Hunter at the time of the trade and that this was the only trade that they could make that would make them a legitimate defense that wouldn't get steamrolled this year. Um, So I just want to throw that out there. Chris Sims, you are – uh, just not not good. Like, and they they have a top three safety in the league in Harrison Smith. And Anthony Harris is number one PFF, which is by NBC Sports, the organization that Chris Sims works for, and he's like the fifth best defensive player on their team. I know that's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. So I like your team of the week. My team of the week. Before we let you go, uh, I'm going baseball. I'm going the Detroit Tigers, who are on a six-game winning streak, the longest in the MLB right now. They are surprisingly one game above 500. They actually claimed Pudge Rodriguez's son the other day, Derek Rodriguez, former uh, Tiger. Pudge was Ivan Rodriguez, and they are currently up three nothing against the Brew Crew. With, surprisingly, their ace, Spencer Turnbull, on the mound. If you've ever heard of that name, Kyle Russo, I, I think... Uh, I think you've used I, that name before in the past for a player of the week. 
Yeah, I have. Uh, you know, he was really good for my fantasy baseball team last year. Spencer Turnbull uh, and the Detroit Tigers are my team of the week. Yeah. Like it. Little little curveball there. But Gabe, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we look forward to seeing you on Tuesday for the debut of the North Pole. Thank you, Tom. Thank you guys for having me on. I love coming on your show and I can't wait for this audience to see my show on Tuesday. I'll surely have you guys on at some point. So I'll stay in touch. Peace out guys. See you again. Appreciate you, Gabe. That was Gabe Flayton from the small town of Cornwall, New York. All right. So let's transition into some NBA playoffs. We'll switch the block F. Um, Brandon Ingram wins most improved player of the year. And Jonathan Isaac just announced that he will miss the entire 2020-2021 season with a torn ACL. That is a bummer because he's a great defender for the Orlando Magic. Uh, and then great to see Ingram win the most improved player. I think this is a guy a lot of people had. Uh, I know Schroeder was up there. I know a lot of people thought Spicy P might get it again, but I think Brandon Ingram definitely well uh, well deserved that. Yeah, Kyle, I'm gonna still, I'm gonna Kyle. still argue my guy, <laughs> my guy Bam at a uh, Bam at a bio. Um, he improved upon every category better than Brandon Ingram. On top of the fact that his team was the fourth seed, and Brandon Ingram's team was a team that made it in due to the bubble rules, and I think that's a real. I, I don't know what it is. It happens to the Heat all the time. They they don't get the credit where the credit is due, whether it's Eric Spolster and his coaching, whether it's their players and personnel and what they brought to the table. You know, even though John Moran, Zion Williamson, the fact that they're up there for those two candidates of rookie of the year, Kendrick Nunn for some reason never gets talked about. I understand that he's not going to win, but never gets talked about. Bam Adebayo should have come away with this. And I'm going to make this argument too. I think there should have been two other people in front of Brendan Ingram as well. You know, if we're going to be talking about a team that, didn't necessarily make the playoffs, but made the playoffs. Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic took that step in year two to now potential face of the league. He took that step. He is a top five player in the NBA right now. Mark my words, he's a top five player. And granted, a healthy Kristaps Porzingis throughout this series against the L.A. Clippers, I'm telling you guys, and I'm going to state it again, I think the Dallas Mavericks would have forced the game seven, and I think they would have won. I'm going to one-up you. I think Luka Doncic is the best scorer in the National Basketball Association. I think he's probably one of the best all-around players. I don't know about score, but best all-around player, I, I'd argue that. And my argument for that is because James Harden's a very streaky shooter. He can go yep. for 50, yep. and other nights he goes for only 25. So He does it efficiently, too, Luka. Yep. That's the difference. And then another guy, Devontae Graham, as well, went from averaging four points yeah. a game to dropping 18. I get it. Because he didn't get the minutes, I understand that aspect last year. But just the the jump to stardom, in a sense. A second-round pick never really had high hopes. Getting the point guard position, why? Because Kemba left. That's the only reason why he started. I understand that. And he I, went up almost, you know, what is that? That's around 15 points, 14 points jumping up. I get it, team didn't make the playoffs. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll rescind that Devontae Graham comment, and I'll put Brandon Ingram ahead of him. But I think that Bam should have won, and I think Lucas should have been right behind him. Uh, Brendan Ingram, fantastic player. Happy to see he's finally um, getting that traction as a star player in this league. I think that Bam was more deserving of it, you know, but it is what it is. It is what it is. 
The last thing I'll say on that is, I mean, he played for a new team this year too. So I think having to transition from that and not having Zion a lot this year, yeah. I think learning from veterans like JJ Redick helped him and Drew Holiday as well. Um, and Derek favors, but I, you know, I realistically think that it was really a toss up. And I think those are a lot of good key candidates. I think Bam was a top three candidate as well. Yeah. Um, a lot of people would argue it would be him, but anyway, let's get to the Lakers trailblazers series. We're going to talk about that quickly here. The Lakers won game five, eliminating Portland Carmelo in the losing effort at 27 points uh, in 40 minutes. Does he return to the blazers? I know there's thoughts that the Knicks want him back. I think Carmelo Anthony will stay with Portland for another year. I think Carmelo Anthony is the epitome of the classic veteran NBA role player at this point, a guy that will score a lot some nights, a guy that will grab rebounds for you, and he's just another threat. He's a scoring option that takes attention off of Dame and CJ. It'll be definitely very interesting to see what happens just because we've always known Melo as this player. You know, We're finally seeing that transition where – it's not the money anymore. You know, we saw that early in his career where he went for the money. I don't know if you guys know this, but he was supposed to be part of the three in South Beach. And he said no and signed with the Knicks. And that's why Chris Bosch then became that third piece. But it was supposed to be Mello. It was never supposed to be Chris Bosch. But he, he, uh, he got traded to the Knicks. But he signed the extension with them. Yeah, he right. didn't have to. And then, so anyway, moving on from that point in time. Now seeing with this Portland team, what are they going to do when it comes to cap space? Because I know that Hassan Whiteside has been a major part of their success this season. He's a free agent. I'm pretty sure that Nurkic has to be signed soon. Damon, Damon and CJ are making a boatload of money, and, and they need to add pieces as well. That's where they really fell apart is that the bench, you know, even though they were hurt, the bench was not strong enough this offseason. Unless you see some major steps by Nasir Little next season or Onfrey Simmons as well, maybe a Gary Trent Jr. coming into his own as well. They're going to have to get some pieces as well, especially if they want to compete to that higher extent and level in which we know they can, as well as Zach Collins coming back from surgery. What is that going to be like? Because he could potentially miss the beginning of the season as well. But I think that Carmelo would definitely be a good fit. He's already stated that he wants to be back. So I don't see why, other than cap reasons, why he would not be back in a Portland uniform next season. So I think what Portland needs to do is they need to sign um, a backup point guard yeah, or draft. They need, they need a backup point guard. They need a better backup wing and a backup center. So right now, the way the lineup looks, Damon CJ are locked. You have Mello, um, Zach Collins, and Nurkic. Remember, you also have Rodney Hood, who they were missing. Everybody forgets about Rodney Hood and their mother. Yep. So um, he's there as well, who can start. Gary Trent's developing into a quite nice player. Uh, Hazonia, I'm not sure if they'll bring him back. But, you, I mean, look, you got Trent. They're probably not bringing Whiteside back. But no. you got guys like Trent off the bench who can come in and play Rodney Hood, Carmelo Anthony. They need a little more depth. I agree. Nasir Little's a young player who's developing, but I think they're going to be okay. I think they're going to be okay. Will it be enough to compete with the Lakers and the Clippers? I'm not sure, but I don't think the Lakers are going to be this good five years from now after nope. LeBron retires. So, no. Tom, I don't mean to cut you off, but isn't uh, the only one that has a full – hold on. Let me restate what I was – thinking my mind working faster than my mouth um isn't lebron the only one that has a contract longer yep. than this year anthony davis is a free agent after this year LeBron james has two years left on his deal with the lakers yep. after this year everybody else james like you alluded to is basically a one-year deal as far as i'm Kuz- concerned besides kuzma him kuzma yep. and okay. um i think 
Maybe I Caruso. Maybe Caruso. Yeah. Um, so anyway, definitely something to look out for. Yeah, the problem was Portland couldn't contain AD, and the Lakers shot fifty-five percent from the field. Game six the other night, the Clippers take care of business against the Mavs. They win the series four to two, one eleven ninety-seven win. Doncic put it all out on the line: thirty-eight points, nine boards, nine assists. He was great, but look, he had no supporting cast. Porzingis wasn't there. Uh, you know, the, the second option was Dorian Finney-Smith for them. That was terrible. That was terrible because Hardaway didn't show up. Trey Burke was getting way too many minutes from for my liking from a defensive standpoint. And look, the team shot under 30% from the field where Kawhi Leonard could put up his classic numbers. Zubak stepped up because Paul George been suff- has been suffering from anxiety this whole series, Yeah, uh, which, is a ser- which is a serious thing, which is why he struggled in these playoffs. Yeah, He struggled in these playoffs adapting to the new environment, and hopefully he can continue to improve throughout the playoffs. But I think having a Kawhi and, you know, guys like Lou Williams, Trez Harrell, and Zubak, and Marcus Morris even, uh, you know, the Clippers were lucky to get past the Mavericks uh, when they did. Because if you go to Game 7 and Luka Doncic is there, you are not putting him away easy with or without KP. Um Overall, job well done by the Clippers. Look, this was going to be a tough series. It wasn't going to be a sweep. There's no way Luka's getting no. swept in the playoffs. No. Um, the Nuggets and the Jazz, classic seven-game series. The Nuggets were down 3-1. to one. Uh, Game six, they come in and they um, even it at three after trailing the series 3-1. to one. Jamal Murray with 50 points. He was lights out, 9-12 from deep. Uh, Denver shot 50% from behind the arc. And Gary Harris was back off the bench, too. I think that was key because he's a core part of that team. Um, And then for Utah, they gave a good effort. Mitchell, fantastic this series, had 44 points in game six. Mike Conley was back healthy. He was good. But I think the key for Utah was the struggles from Joe Ingles and Royce O'Neal because they were unable to step up and fill in the void that was – you know, left in place by Boyan Bogdanovich when he went down with the wrist injury. So now Ingles and O'Neal, uh, Ingles is an excellent passer for a big forward, and O'Neal is an excellent defender and three-point shooter. But other than that, they can't replace Bogdanovich as that number two scoring option behind Donovan Mitchell. He's just not there. No. And that's why I think Utah ultimately lost this, ser- lost this series. If Bogdanovich is there, I think Utah wins. I yeah, think no Utah, doubt. I think Utah puts it away. In probably six games, maybe to be honest, maybe even less than that because Bogdanovich just he took that jump this season, three point shooting wise, free throw. I believe he had a ninety percent free throw, uh, above forty three point percentage, twenty point score. You're losing a twenty point score in the playoffs and still managed to push a game seven. They're very impressive, and yeah. lost and lost by literally the seconds left yeah. on the clock in last night's game. Well, wasn't. Uh... I think I saw a report earlier. Wasn't his foot technically out? Yeah, he had foot. He had. Oh, are you talking about? Oh, I have no idea. Oh, no are, idea. Uh, we might be on two different games then. Yeah, I think we might be. Okay. About, uh, now we're talking about game seven, guys. Um, very low scoring game. Nuggets win by two, eighty to seventy-eight. Nobody really was scoring in this game, to be honest with you. Um, no. Conley missed a three-point shot at the buzzer, and then the Nuggets completed a comeback. Uh, first time that's been done since 2016, the 2016 NBA Finals, where the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. The classic quote that every fake NBA fan loves to say. Uh, the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. You were once a Warriors fan. Why don't you stick with them after blowing a 3-1 lead? Well, they don't want to be associated with a losing team. That's why. 
Uh, sorry, had to throw in a little salt there towards uh, all those bandwagon Warriors fans over the past couple of years. Um, but look, Jokic scored half the team's points. He had 30 and 14. Nobody else showed up. Gobert was great um, for uh, Utah. Denver got lucky. Conley shot very poorly from the field. Neither team really shot it well. But Russo, as you mentioned earlier, Donovan Mitchell became the first player in NBA playoff history to average 35-plus points per game in a series, over 50% from the field, over 50% from three, over 90% from the foul line, all in a single series. So congratulations to the Greenwich, Connecticut product, Donovan Mitchell. Right up the road, guys. Right up the road. Not too far. I think he actually just, he's he's in the process of finalizing a max contract now with the Jazz as well. Well Well-deserved. That would well, be great. Him, Gobert, Conley, Bogdanovich, Ingles, O'Neal. It's a good uh, team. Jordan Clarkson. It's a good team. They just need another uh, rookie in there, another another role, role player. So the Nuggets will play the Clippers in game one tomorrow night at 9 p.m. I'm really excited for that series now that Gary Harris is back and Jamal Murray is healthy. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. I think the Clippers might have some trouble if Paul George continues to struggle. Denver is a team that's really underrated because they don't have really star power outside of Jokic because Murray is that second guy. He's a star, but he's not a superstar. You know what I'm saying? Denver burns you down defensively. They make you take bad shots, and the Clippers do the exact same thing. And I think the reason why the Clippers have the edge is because of the stardom power that they have. They have the bigger names, the bigger scorers. So if both teams come in with the same strategy, you know, the team with more stars is going to win. So that's why I think I have the Clippers winning this series to advance. But anyway, let's move on. The number four Rockets against the number five Thunder is heading to every sports fan's two favorite words, game seven tonight at 9 p.m. How did they get here? Well, um, Houston blew out OKC in game five. Uh, where no Thunder starter had more than 16 points. The Thunder were awful. They shot 31% from the field. They couldn't stop Robert Covington behind the arc, but they come back in game six, a grind-out win. They contain James Harden, Chris Paul with 28 points, Gallinari with 25, and uh, what Russell Westbrook just got eaten alive in this game by his former team. Seven turnovers. Kyle, what is up with big man Russ? He's... He's rusty. He's he's rusty. This was only his. This is I think his first or second game back um, from his injury, and to be put on a a game clinching scenario is definitely going to be. You know, he's definitely going to show some weaknesses. He turned over the ball to really hand OKC the win at the end of at the end of the game. And what was really confusing for me, just watching the last three four minutes of this game, because I thought Houston had in the bag. Mike D'Antoni was not calling any play. James Harden never touched the ball in the last three, four minutes of the game. How do you not have your best player on your team who is also a, a guy who's going to spread the floor, a guy who could create his own shot, a guy that you know could drive the lane and easily get two free throws because you know they're going to call fouls down to the paint, and yet you don't put the ball in his hands at all? Right. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Houston yeah. should have won that game last night. Not to take anything away – from what OKC has been able to accomplish, because I believe they were also down, weren't they also down three one or no? They were, they were down two one, I believe. Yeah, and then they were yeah, down it's mind boggling, but definitely going to be an entertaining game seven because it's going to be a battle of who's more efficient. To be yeah. quite honest with you, hundred um, percent. 
So now we head to the Eastern Conference. Milwaukee puts away Orlando in five games. Uh, the Bucks win 118-104 on Saturday. Giannis was great, and Chris Middleton finally had a good game. But my biggest question um, for uh, from this series is uh, Dante DiVincenzo, big ragu. Where has he been? Uh, not just in this series, but in the um, seeding games, quite frankly. He has not played well. I think he's the one player in this entire NBA bubble that has been the most affected by it. He went from a sixth man to a no man, quite frankly. This guy's scoring pretty much less than five points every single game. He's not getting assists. He's not defending well. And, you know, he's getting he's getting outplayed by guys like Connaughton, George Hill, uh it's not, it's not acceptable. I understand he's a young guy only in his second year, but do you think the pressure of the playoffs has mounted on big ragu shoulders? I really don't know, to be quite honest with you, because from if you really pay attention to these games and you listen to announcers, the one thing that they consistently say throughout each and every game is that the bubble scenario is almost a perfect scenario for every shooter in the NBA. The, the lighting is better than an actual stadium would be. The floor spacing is better. You have no pressure of the fans whatsoever you, to, you know, get on your back. Maybe that works in some shooters' favors, or maybe it hurts them in other senses. But Dante DiVincenzo has been, like you said, Tom, he's been pretty much terrible, you know, in the nicest way possible. Coming off the bench for the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, we've even seen it, you know, I know I'm jumping ahead, but even this game one against the Miami Heat, 13 minutes, he put up one point. He just has not been an effective role player whatsoever, let alone a six-man but a guy, a scorer, who's supposed to score for them coming off the bench, he has not been effective whatsoever. That's why we're talking about him, because he's a scorer. You want to know his stat line tonight? Six minutes, zero points. Yep. He's done nothing. He's taken one shot. So, look, I think Orlando did a good job exploiting Milwaukee's interior defense in this series with Vukovic, and it's translated. The first game, the, the Heat are up one nothing in this series. Uh, they won 115-104. Jimmy Butler with 40 points, which is a playoff career high for him. The kid shot, I call him a kid, he's almost 30 now, shot 65% from the field. Uh, and Goran Dragic with 27 points. It seems every year when Dragic is in the playoffs, his play elevates from normal Dragic to insane Dragic. Uh, he's going he's gonna to get a payday this offseason. I really hope he stays within the Miami Heat uniform. I hope they're able to work that out. But he is... He has really been their X factor throughout, you know, in this series against the Bucs, in the series against the Pacers, throughout the bubble scrimmage games in which they had. He has been their key factor to the success in which they've had because Jimmy Butler has not been putting up 40 points a night. He's been actually shooting the ball poorly, you know, from the field. The reason why he's finishing off with so many points per night is because opposing teams are sending him to the line 15 times a game. He's an efficient free throw shooter. So if he's going to the line 15 times, he's making 13 of those 15 free throws. You know, we've had some clutch scoring off the bench by Tyler Hero. Kendrick Nunn has also came in clutch. Uh, Bam Adebayo, um, he hasn't necessarily put up numbers himself. But Goran Dragic has been that consistent guy. We're even seeing it in this game now. He's leading the team uh, 17 points. I don't think he scored this half, but he finished off the first half with 17 points. He's, he's been the guy. He's been their guy. And in game one, Miami did a really good job at containing Giannis. He was he was also four for twelve from the line. I don't know if you brought that, that, was, that up. That was, but, that was horrible. That was yeah. really the and Brooke Lopez was really the catalyst of the offense. He hit four threes, had twenty four points, and game two right now, Milwaukee's down by three points. Five now. I mean, look, 
they don't, don't they don't well, look good. They they do not look good. They got to come away with something in the fourth quarter. Um, you know, maybe the strategy just doesn't work. The fact that they uh, rest Giannis like the whole regular season and in the playoffs, he's just not used to playing these uh, like these big minutes. Tom, as a, as a Bucks fan yourself, and maybe somebody who watches the team more closely than I do, why? He's not taking that many, but why is Giannis Antetokounmpo even shooting from the three-point line? Why is he standing on the perimeter? Mm-hmm. Well, with a wingspan of his magnitude, it should be a it should be a dump and play on almost every single attempt because you know he's the most efficient the most efficient player inside the paint. Why is he even standing on the perimeter? Why is he even standing from twenty feet out when you know he can't shoot? Well, I don't know, but maybe it has something to do with this. Shout out Nick Tonks. Oh gosh. <laughs> Stop jinxing it, man. Enough I have to. I have to. I have to have that psychological presence that the Islanders are going to blow out the Flyers tomorrow, which means the Flyers are going to win. All righty. We're going <laughs> to move Thanks, on. Thanks, for commenting. Fact, uh, anyway, uh, by the way, that Eagles Cup was not uh, a pun intended last night that I sent you guys. But anyway, um, Kyle, to answer your question, the reason why is because Miami – is unable, I mean, Milwaukee is unable to exploit the inside against Miami. You have great big man defenders in Jay Crowder and Bam Adebayo, right? And I believe they still have Iguodala on their roster. Yeah, Iguodala is still there. He's more of a role player off the bench. Right. And Dragic is a pretty decent defender himself, and so is Jimmy Butler. He was great in Chicago. And Giannis, look, he's been trying to shoot more. You know, he's been trying to learn from a veteran like Kyle Korver, but in this stage of the game, you know what your strength is. Giannis needs to go back to what he does best, and that is dominating the paint. He is the best player, in my opinion, in the history of the NBA at scoring consistently in the paint, and he's been doing that for quite some time. He And look, I understand. We have the Kareems. We have the Wilson, but Giannis is just on guardable it's not just the fact that he dominates the paints he's so athletic and his wingspan is insane you know it's bigger it's bigger than the three of us combined you know what i'm saying so not a lot of players can step two feet from the three-point line and still hit the layup it's the athleticism is real the size is real i just don't know why we're not seeing this series why he's taking advantage of that you know granted having great defense being opposed to you know get to the free throw line Take your take your risk there. I'd rather have him shoot from the free throw line than shoot from the three point line. That's just my personal opinion. Shout out John Unterweger from Tulsa, Oklahoma, tuning into the show. Uh, cousin Unterweger, hello. Um, yeah. So back to this. Look, Milwaukee's in trouble. We all know it. They got to find a way to grind this series out. It could come down to six, seven games. But if Milwaukee's not careful, they could be gone in four or five potentially. Um, it's insane because you look at the other um, series in the Eastern Conference, the three seed, the underdog Celtics are up to nothing. And I don't quite know if Boston is an underdog. I understand they're without Gordon Hayward, but this team is, uh, I think personally, they're more experienced and they learned a lot from losing to Cavs two years ago and losing to Milwaukee last year. Now I understand Toronto's got Kyle Lowry, Spicy P, OJ Anubi, those guys. But at the end of the day, and not to mention Marcus Sol and Serge Ibaka as well, who have both have an NBA championship under their caliber. But as far as these two teams, you stack them up against each other. Boston has way more talent at this point. Yeah. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, 
who's a borderline like top 12 player in the league at this point, maybe even be top 10. Yeah. Um, and now Campbell Walker, who I think is an upgrade over Kyrie Irving because of the way he plays and fits their system. Not yeah. necessarily maybe from a talent or size perspective, but Kemba Walker stays healthy. He's going to give you 75 games a year. And, you know, quite frankly, I love what Daniel Tice has brought to the table defensively and rebounding. The guy gets like 13, 15 rebounds a game on average. That doesn't happen from your everyday starting NBA center. That's not something that's just routine. Uh, and the Celtics did a good job in game one. They limited Spicy P to just 13 points. He shot 5 of 16 from the field. Fred Van Vliet was 3 of 16. He stunk. And then Kyle Lowry, I mean, Toronto shot 25% from three. And game two was a similar scenario. The Celtics only won by three, but Jason Tatum just went off. He evaporated for 34 points. He was great. Perfect 14 of 14 from the foul line. And then Marcus Smart has done a fantastic job stepping in for Gordon Hayward. Look, Boston hasn't missed a beat offensively. They've shortened their bench very nicely where – I don't even think Cantor's playing. Robert Williams is getting all the minutes. No, Cantor's not playing. He hasn't been playing. Robert Williams has been great. The guy had like 15 points off the bench the other night. I mean, didn't miss a shot. That, that's what you love from a center. It's more than what you expect from a backup. Um, and if you give up 35 points to Jason Tatum, you don't deserve to advance, quite frankly. And Toronto's another team. Look, if they're not careful, they're going to go soon. They may go sooner than Milwaukee if they keep this up. Because, uh, look, I don't think Spicy P, uh, you know, I keep calling him that because Fonz loves to call him that, uh, pa- uh, Pascal Siakam, I personally don't think he's ready to be the number one guy on an NBA team. I think he's the number two guy on an NBA team, but Kyle Lowry can't be your number one. He needs to be like your two or three, like a supporting player. He can't be the superstar player. And I don't think Pascal is there yet. I don't think he's there yet. I, he could be on his way. But his game has changed rapidly in order to be a consistent player in this league. Uh, when OJ Anubi is your top scorer, that's a problem. It's a problem. I mean, they've shot on their 40% in the first two games of the series. Yeah. They're heading into game three tomorrow with their backs against the wall with very little room, very small margin for error against these mm-hmm. Boston Celtics. So that's my thought process there with that. Uh, shout out. Uh, Dory Finocchio Berry for tuning into the live stream. Um, so let's get some hockey. Uh, we'll switch to the ice. By the way, James, uh, you put a comment in the private chat before. Uh, breaking news former Mets legend Tom Seaver has passed away at the age of 75. Terrible, terrible news yeah. for not just the New York Mets organization, but baseball as well. Tom Seaver, he helped the Mets get to the World Series. So um, always a great legend. His jersey number is retired for the Mets, and you know, um, it sucks. Uh, he he was a great pitcher all all around, and a great leader, a great locker room type of player. So he will definitely be missed by you know the baseball, uh, the entire MLB organization. It's horrible. It's really really horrible. Yeah. You know, we're looking at the the year of twenty twenty, man, and it's just been. A lot of good people being taken away too soon. It's, uh, it's, it's been crazy. Yeah, no doubt. Um, no doubt. Hey, but at least Vince Scully got a Twitter at 92 years old. He's still running yeah. and functioning great, man. I love Vince Scully. I look up to that guy. Never hey, too um, old. Never too old. We still got John Madden as well, who's around 80 years old. So he's, yeah. he's a strong, 
chicken as well. Anyway, let's get some hockey. Uh, big news out of St. Louis. They trade their now backup goalie, Jake Allen, to Montreal for a third and seventh round pick in the 2020 draft. I think this is good for the Canadians. They needed an upgrade at the goalie position. Jake Allen's a guy who had some success in St. Louis. Uh, and then the Penguins named former Capitals head coach Todd Reardon as one of their new assistants, along with Mike Bellucci. Thoughts on that for Pittsburgh? I'm a little surprised, but good for good for big man Todd. Yeah, I was I was very surprised to see that so early because he only got fired. He only got fired like less than a week ago, yeah. and he really took a lot of heat for the lackluster in which the the Capitals were. You know, back-to-back years after coming off a of Stanley Cup, losing in the first round, and not losing any talent necessarily, just losing your head coach. And Barry Trotz is a fantastic coach, there's no doubt. And that's why a lot of pressure was probably put on Todd Reardon. But to get a job right away, just after being fired, and, and put, on a, put on a team roster in which the Penguins themselves have some major issues and flaws to address as they move into next season. Sidney Crosby just had wrist surgery today. Um as that team gets older, uh, as well, of any Malkin and Sidney Crosby and those guys uh, having having goalie issues as well, not knowing the future of Matt Murray on the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Oh my God, <laughs> Pittsburgh Penguins. Penguins. As as they look to to figure out their goalie decision, the GM made a statement saying that basically one of them is going to go. Very well, in- very interesting decision. Very very interesting decision. Very interesting. You also have to look at it this way. It's a uh, shortened off season. That is true. Technically, so their off season already happened. Yeah. So mainly probably getting the most qualified people maybe in there. So yep. let's, let's get to these series, guys. Uh, the number one seed in the West, the Vegas Golden Knights, going against the fifth seed, Vancouver Canucks. Uh, Vegas leads this series 3-2. to two. Vancouver with an impressive slim win last night against Vegas to stay alive in the playoffs. Um yeah, it's crazy because game three, Vegas won 3 nothing. The Canucks really struggled 0 for 5 on the power play. They were not good. Uh, then Robin Leonard with the shutout. And then game four, very similar scenario. Vegas scores another five goals on them. Three in the third period really took the heart out of Vancouver. Um, Pacioretty was great. Uh, they really struggled to find a source of offense in the series. JT Miller's really JT Miller has really been one of the very few guys who's produced for them. But last night in game five, it was a different story. Uh, rookie goalie Thatcher Demko made 42 saves in his first ever playoff start. So Vancouver rolled the dice and they cashed in. And here's how Elias Pettersson had a game winning goal in the third period late in the game and they were able to limit the opportunities from Vegas and their guys. Um, and I think this is really key because uh, it's going to be interesting. Vancouver hasn't made a conference final since 2011, so it's been a while. It's been a while for them, and game six will be tomorrow. So I still think Vegas pulls away, Yeah, but Vancouver's not going away without a fight. Just more no. surprising in this game, let alone you know uh, Thatcher Demko getting his – first career playoff start in 42 saves is that Robin Leonard only faced 17 shots. It was 43 to 17 shots. And you would think that the one would, you know, having more shots on goal would put in your favor, obviously not. But I think that Vegas does come out. I I still think that, you know, I've made my Stanley cup pick. I said, the Vegas is going to be there. I'm still going to stick by that as they lead three, two in the series right now. 
Um, definitely going to be an interesting matchup to see because, you know, that 3-2 scenario, a team like Vancouver has been shaky but been somewhat, you know, they, they've shown you what they got. A complete momentum change could happen tomorrow, potentially tomorrow night. Yeah. Totally. So the other series in the West, we have Dallas and Colorado. Very similar situation. Two teams that have not been to the conference finals in years. Uh, so Dallas got off to a 3-1 series lead, and now uh, the Avs staying alive last night. Shout out Lauren Gardner, their uh, studio host. <laughs> she's, she's a good one for sure. Game four, the Stars win 5-4. to four. This is a very back-and-forth type of game. The Stars are up 3-0 in the first. And then Klingberg and Foxa were great, each having three points. And uh, Jamie Benn as well. But then I think it was, I forget what happened. Um, wasn't Dallas up like five to two in the third? Um, and then Colorado scored two. Um, what day are you talking about? Talking about game four, game where four. they pulled Frank Coos very late in the game, the goalie. And then the goalie that came in for him was just fantastic. Oh, it was Nachuskin and the Mesnikov had a pair of goals. Go. Yeah, for them late for Colorado. They were down five to two. They uh, narrowed, they trimmed the lead down five to four, but five they were unable to uh, come back. And then game yep. five, the other night, the Avs just erupt for five goals. They were up five nothing in the first period. Uh, goals from Bellamere. Burakovsky, McKinnon, Ratnan, and Kadri. And yep. then uh, Burakovsky actually had two goals in the game. He had another later on. And then the Stars would end up scoring three of the last four, but it wasn't enough. I think what's right. really going to be big for Colorado in game six is can they get off to that quick start again? Because I think the longer the game hangs in the balance, the longer it favors Dallas because they've had a lot of grind-out wins this year, yeah. especially in these playoffs. They're very battle-tested because, remember – they made it to the conference semifinals last year as well. Uh, in, right. Go ahead, Russo. Oh, it was just an interesting decision because Dallas could have ended this game out. I, I don't know why Dallas's head coach decided to go with Ben Bishop in game five, which would have been a, uh, you know, an elimination game for the Colorado avalanche. And then they went with Ben Bishop, who was, I don't think has played a game since entering the bubble uh, because he's been hurt. He's, uh, he finally got back on the ice and the man gets absolutely shell shocked. Gets four goals scored on him in a matter of minutes. Well, and then they won. Uh, just I don't mean to cut you off, but it was back to back games. I get that, but even in the playoffs, you don't. This has been one of the only playoffs that I think that I've ever seen where you've had uh, a sharing, I guess, of of goalies getting you know the opportunities. Usually, you stick with your starting goalie, especially one that has carried you like this. And Ancon Tadobin, who's been the backup goalie throughout the entire season, has started almost every single game in the, bu- um, in the bubble, uh, this playoff series for them. And in a game-time elimination type of game, you throw Ben Bishop out there who's yet to play a game, and he just he just gets obliterated. Yeah. Well, that's how the cookie crumbles, guys. So we head to the Eastern Conference. Actually, no, um, before we get there, I want to say a couple things because Game 6 is actually currently in progress tonight. It started at 8. 1-1. One, 1-1 uh, so far. Okay. Um, the... Stars have not made a conference final since 2008, and even better, uh, the Colorado Avalanche last made a conference finals in 2002. I doubt Kyle Russo remembers that, but um, 
I don't remember the I don't remember the 2011 one either. I don't remember. I don't remember 2008 one. Whatever year you said either. So time to make fun of you guys here. So the Flyers and the Islanders. The Islanders are up three to two in the series. Game three, they looked great. The Flyers are up one nothing. They had a goal from Pitlick, and then the Islanders just went off. I thought they were really good. Everly, Jordan Everly's been fantastic for you guys in this series. And then uh, game four, similar result, a close game. You guys pull it out 3-2, to two, go up 3-1 in the series. Yes, they do. Talk about Peugeot. I mean, uh, that acquisition, it's, it's been up and down for you guys. It's been a roller coaster ride. I don't care what anybody says. J.G. Peugeot is, is that missing piece. You yes, know, yeah. a lot of – the a lot of you know opposing fans against the Islanders they gave the Islanders a lot of heat for giving up their first round pick this year and a first round pick next year but just based on what he's been able to do in the playoffs alone seven or eight goals in this playoff you know in this bubble scenario let alone the assists in which he's had and what he's brought to the table he's been unbelievable I mean I, I do it again and again over again this is what this is what you need this guy for. This is something that you've seen that they haven't, you know, obviously losing John Tavares, but this is this could potentially be that goal scorer. When the Islanders traded for J.G. Pajot at the deadline, he had more goals than anybody else on the Islanders. Yes. This is going to be your guy. Hopefully they sign him for the next five, six years. Hopefully this is the guy that can score you goals, and especially in these clutch moment scenarios where playoff games are on the line. The Islanders, the Islanders are one game away from an Eastern Conference Finals, guys. That's what we're talking about right now. Twenty-seven years, Pedro. If he, if we have to go into stoppage of the season, he would have probably been looking like the MVP on the Islanders for the season. Oh yeah, on the Islanders. You know, yeah. there's there's a lot of what ifs on the table. I think you can't take um, you know, a lot away from Barzal and Brassard either. They've been great face-off players for you guys this season and it was no different in game 5. However, Philadelphia did come away with that in overtime. The Islanders dropped two goals um, in the third to tie the game 3 to 3. Yes, Kyle. Breaking news, Leonard Fournette signs with the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Wow. So the rich get richer. Man, so a team that already has Ronald Jones and their other running back. LaShawn McCoy, they have two signed. LaShawn McCoy, Ronald Jones, Leonard Fournette, not to mention their tight end room, right? That's three running backs, their tight end room. Gronkowski, Breit, and OJ OJ Howard. Howard. Three elite tight end, well, not three elite, but three uh, really good tight ends in their room. And their wide receiver class, now you got Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, I don't know if they still have Adam Humphreys or not. I think he's in Tennessee now. He's in Tennessee. But um, damn, the rich get richer. The rich get richer. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Uh, Tampa Bay is going to be good. They're going to be really good, especially with Bruce Arians at the helm. I'm very confident in those guys this year. But back to what we were just talking about. The game's tied 3-3 three to three going into OT. I thought, you know, the Flyers, they're, good, they're really good players, were really good. Uh, Claude Giroux, Travis Konechny, Scott Lawton, those guys, they all stepped up. They had points in this game. They performed. They excelled. Carter Hart, I thought, was solid in net, although there was some controversy um, on, on a play. Oh, but, that's um, big controversy. We, we need to yeah, talk, about talk, about talk about that for a second. So last night, Russo, uh, we were talking beforehand. You saw the game, I believe you were saying. Yeah. Is, so 
the puck was going around the rink, he was supposed to kind of let it go by him or shuffle it to this guy behind him, right? It winds up in his mitt. You know, yeah. the big goalie mitt? Yeah. You could bat it down. You can't yeah. catch it. It and never... It never rolled around the rink. It was a it was a slap shot up in the air, and he just decided to go behind net and catch it and catch it. But you're supposed to do is drop it. Yeah, after it, you it catch it, a, it stopped and, the play, and and the announcers even said that should be a penalty. And the, the refs ref, even went over to him and was like, "Listen, you can't do that." But they didn't call a penalty. Well, they should have called the penalty if the if they had to go over and be like, "Listen, buddy, we yeah. let you slide, but you can't do it. You should th- there should be something in play to call a penalty because that should have sent one of their guys to the box. So, yep. you know, if say if uh, Varlamov or Grice caught that, maybe the penalty would have been called. You know, I don't, I don't know about that. But just, well, I don't know, but at the same time, you just in a sense, it was I, a, I wouldn't blame it on the refs though. If I'm the Islanders, don't put yourself in that position late in the game. They should have played better earlier in the game, so it wasn't a tie. No, I know, you but you, say, you need you to blame the refs. If, if anything, you, if if anything, you blame Philly for letting up two goals in the clutch third period within a minute and a half of each other, yeah. which tied the game up to force the OT. Right. I mean, that was the same time that that one call, yes, it very well could make a difference in the game, but are you going to sit there and ponder on it and say, if that didn't happen, we already advance? Oh, no. It's a completely different game. I mean, that's completely separate from the first three periods. You're tied. It's a complete new ball game now. I know to have that play happen, uh, that happened, I believe, with nine minutes left in the first period, and then the Flyers wind up scoring within two minutes later. The Isles would have been on a power play that entire two minutes. I mean, that would have been huge for them, especially because they've been good on the power play they've been good i'm really excited for tomorrow i'm feeling good guys i'm being i'm being real serious this time when i say it i'm feeling really good about game six the islanders have a chance to advance to their first conference finals for the first time in 27 years uh just fathom that for a second while i bring up this stat i know barzal and uh, barzal is questionable for the islanders and then uh Sean Couturier is questionable for the Flyers. So a couple game time decisions tomorrow. We'll see how that weeds out during the day. But uh, congratulations on getting this far. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. So right, we head on. talking about my own. This. Yeah. Talking about. <laughs> we move on to Tampa Bay and Boston, our last series we're going to talk about. Game four. Look. Palat was fantastic in this series for the Lightning. Boston, you know, I wish we kind of had Connor Walsh on tonight to talk about it, but we'll have him on maybe in a week or two. Just this whole thing about not having Tuka Rask in this series, it really, it was really detrimental to their success, where uh, Halak was good at times, but he's a very inconsistent player. You know what you're going to get with Tuka Rask night in and night out. I think, um, look, and it was just crazy because game four, Boston just flat out lost. They did not look good. But in game five, the game went to overtime. Hedman had the game winner uh, where the Lightning won three to two. I think Vasilevsky was just flat out better than Halak. Where I think the margin between Vasilevsky and Rask is a lot more paper thin, right? You're sitting there, you're breaking down, you're analyzing. But then you're like, Halak doesn't have as much experience in net. Tuka Rask has been there, done that. This team got to the Stanley Cup finals last year. So now I'm just trying to wrap my head around if uh, – you know, just what happened to Boston in this series? I don't. I think I don't, just, I don't really know. They might have just fallen. Honestly, they might have just fallen apart. Like yeah. Tampa Bay was not an easy team to be in with. It's not like the 
not like say if it was reversed, if the Islanders got Tan- uh, Boston and Tampa Bay got the Flyers. Obviously, we don't know what that outcome could have been. We could have pre- we could predict it for hours, but Tampa Bay isn't a pushover team, which we saw. Yeah. I think Boston they came prepared, but I don't think they knew how good Tampa Bay is. I, I'm thinking that same thing because what's even crazy about this series to begin with is that Boston just got completely, it looked like slapped in the face. You look at the three, uh, the big three in Boston, the only one that showed up was uh, Brad Marsham, like seven goals. Bergeron only had three, Pasternak only had three as well. And now I'm learning that uh, David Pasternak actually had a lower body injury. He was playing through that the entire postseason. So that came into effect as well. Um, for the la- uh, lack of goal scoring and success on yeah. his end. And then, you know, losing to Karask, losing your starting goalie, man. I mean, that hurts. Just, I mean, I, I understand completely the reasoning behind it, and there's no knock against him whatsoever. But that, that, that does a number on your team because, like Tom was alluding to, Yaroslav Halak, you know, James, we know best. He was not a bad goalie, but he's not really that number one. He's, he's not, not that guy. Tuka no. Rask is one of the greatest goalies that the NHL has ever seen. And to lose that presence, especially being in the Boston organization for so long, losing that presence on your team, uh, locker room potential guy as well, um, going in there with Halak uh, for those games. Because didn't I'm pretty sure Boston wound up winning a game 7-1 to one against Tampa. It was just a complete... Complete I, obliteration of this team. I believe uh, you're talking about Tampa over Boston. Yeah, I'm talking about Tampa. Yeah, that's what I. Yes, yeah, that's what me, I meant to say. I'm looking on the app right now. Yeah, seven to one. They wind up losing yeah. game Boston, three. Something that they had so much success in throughout the season, scoring. You just couldn't find that in this series. They had three games against Tampa in which they only scored two games. Excuse me, in which they only yeah. scored one goal. Where this team who was taking the league by storm with the amount of goal scoring in which they had. I believe David Pasternak actually led the league in goal scoring this year. He just didn't see that out of this team. And like you said, Tampa, not a pushover team. And maybe that was potentially the mindset. Maybe not. Uh, not having Steven Stamkos, who's also one of the best players in the NHL, throughout the entire postseason. Yeah. You know, that was, in, in, a, in a sense, the mindset. And not to mention, this all started in the round robin, too. Once the season resumed, Boston really struggled. They were the top seed in the East at the time, and they came out fourth. They didn't win a single round robin game. And I think the turning point of this series, it was brought up by uh, Chris Nosek and Dylan James on uh, Puck Off on JDF Sports last night. Go check that out, too. They're live right now. Um, But where the Lightning won 7-1 to in Game 3, that was the turning point of this series. Boston just completely backed off. They were very conservative and they were unable to generate any type of offense against a Tampa Bay team that just kept putting their foot on the gas. And at the end of the day, it cost them this series and their chance at, um, it's frustrating if you're Boston, you know, I'm glad I don't have to listen to Jack Edwards as much anymore, but look, it's, uh, it's good to see Tampa Bay back, especially after not winning a single game in the postseason last year, that really hurt them, but it's good to see them back they also probably have a chip on their shoulder from that and knowing they're getting back in puts a little bit more of an edge on the guys that are playing 100 percent, i would agree with that um guys so um before we sign off tonight i want to thank everybody for watching our facebook live stream tonight 
Um, you know, it was great having Gabe Fleeton on to talk with us. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, tomorrow night, Kyle, you and I are going to be making our 53-man roster projection for the New York football giants. I am very excited. And we will be joined by a special guest. It is New York Giants pre-, half-, and post-game host on WFAN and host of Big Blue Kickoff on Giants.com, Lance Meadow. I'm definitely looking forward to having him on. Uh, Kyle, thoughts on that? It's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. We're going to get a lot of insight, you know, a week and a half before the season starts. Uh, new acquisitions, new people in for the Giants. I know with the new acquisition of, uh, uh, oh, my God, the cornerback's name, which they just traded from the, for the Broncos. Isaac I'm, Yadam. Isaac Yadam. I'm going to have to make some adjustments to my 53-man roster again. <laughs> so that's going to be some fun to uh, see where I want to take a player out of play um, in that as well. But it'll definitely be an entertaining time tomorrow. Make sure you tune in tomorrow to me and Tom as we host uh, with Lance Meadow, special guest. And we'll be sharing that into some giant groups as well. So we'll be looking for some good engagement with, uh, with you guys and some good questions for Lance. Uh, and, yeah, just a heads up, um, join us next Wednesday, 7 to 9 p.m. We'll be back this time for a full-blown NFL season preview. On behalf of Kyle Russo and James Montefusco, I'm your host, Tom Scavetta, saying so long. Have a good night. You've been watching Review and Preview here on Facebook Live. Good night, everybody.